two gays talking Emma Frost are going to talk about Emma Frost's gay brother. It is just sort of a thing that's going to happen. Who doesn't want to be Emma Frost's gay brother? X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Alex Abad-Santos, a senior culture writer at Vox.com, often specializing in comics news, and he is here to talk to me about my favorite character from the X-Men in the modern age, Emma Frost, the White Queen. He has occasionally referred to himself as Vox's Emma Frost correspondent, so I knew that he would be the right guest for this episode. Thank you for dropping in, Alex. Thanks for having me. I hope we can do Emma Frost some service since she's your favorite. Yeah, well, I know she's. <laughs> I know you love her, and and uh, I didn't want to, you know, jump right in with her because I wanted to start with sort of traditional X Men. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I have to say, uh, on the day that we are recording this, it just so happens that Dame Diana Rigg has passed, and um, R.I.P. to a legend. Uh, it's just particularly strange because Emma Frost was named after Emma Peel from the 60s British spy series The Avengers, starring, that was Diana Rigg's character. Uh, the whole Hellfire Club is inspired by the 1966 episode A Touch of Brimstone, and Diana Rigg ends up having to wear like a sexy lingerie corset kind of costume that Claremont and Byrne kind of lifted. So um, R.I.P. Dame Diana. And she was Lady Oletta. And she was really mean. And Emma she Frost was. Was, really she mean. was very Emma Frost-like <laughs> in Game of Thrones. It was kind of an old Emma Frost vibe. She was the blueprint. She was. But we are here to talk about Emma Frost, uh, a character who I really adore. Um, and it's interesting uh, to me just because I grew up reading my father's Claremont back issues. And I was never that super into Emma Frost as a villain. But I, I do think there are a few X-Men characters that have had really incredible character arcs. And she and Magneto are sort of up there. But Magneto's has been a little bit more all over the place, whereas hers has been a pretty consistent... With a few... With a few bumps. Bumps There's in the road. <laughs> and, and An Inhumans versus X-Men shaped bump in the road that we're just mm-hmm. going to touch on very briefly at some point, because to me, it doesn't exist. Um... <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I think that once her students were murdered and she decided that maybe she'd been going about everything all wrong and she decided to try and be good, I found her much more interesting. And, and then the Grant Morrison new X-Men, she really just steals the show. What's mm-hmm. your uh, your sort of Emma Frost history? So I I was a little boy and I saw this Saturday morning cartoon called Pride of the X-Men. Uh, love Pride of the X-Men. And she was like, Magneto, we're going to break you out of this like truck that is holding him. And she, she all of a sudden, one, makes everyone kind of like hallucinate into that they're melting into the ground. Like all the guards, like they're all melting. Yes. And all of a sudden she has like a psychic bolt that like breaks open the truck. She throws like, like psychic spears in that. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. awesome. <laughs> 
She's in it for about five seconds. <laughs> no, I know. And it was such a bizarre pull because like there's no Hellfire Club. She just happens to be like working for Magneto. So there's no explanation yeah. of why she's called the White Queen. And to some extent, since she became a good guy, they've kind of downplayed that nickname because mm-hmm. without the rest of the Lord's Cardinal, like named after other chess pieces, it sounds a little mm-hmm. strange, just like by itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it does. It's like when you had a black king and a black queen and a white bishop and a this and a that and a black rook, like it made more sense. But when it's just like, this lady's the white queen and it's just this like rich blonde lady, it, it, it seems <laughs> a little weird for a superhero. So. And you're just like, in these times, are you just like, is she a white queen or is she <laughs> right like is it what does that mean exactly so i think um i think it's smart that they've downplayed that code name i love pride of the x-men and i love the konami arcade game based on it mm-hmm. um which i used clips from in the, the theme for this podcast and she has one of the like you know the game was made in japan and the dialogue is famously not super grammatically yeah, it is. Welcome, is it welcome to die? She's the one who has the famous line, X-Men, welcome to die, which is when in her boss fight, which is really superb. And perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And, it, you know, I often think it when uh, whenever I welcome someone to die. Um, <laughs> but I think it, that was that was the entry point, right? And yeah, no, that makes was, total sense. And then it was X-Men cards. And then Love the those, those trading cards, yeah. I got in trouble for school because everyone was like, wow, it's the X-Men. And the, like those cards were very, I guess, scandalous because it was just a lot of boobs. Yeah, there's that one where it's the one I can picture it. I think it was the Tops trading cards where like she's... Um, or Fleer. It's, I forget the brand. But I it's think like, it's Fleer. It's the one yeah. where she's like on, she's sort of like standing on an ottoman in like her little white <laughs> queen Hellfire yes. Club lingerie with a champagne glass. I because think that. I yeah. also had that card and I think my mother was a little bit like, um. Yeah, I got it taken away from school at school because I brought them to school because I was like, let's trade some. Right. The t- then someone busted me, and I was like, I don't care. These are boobs. I'm, I'm homo. They're right, just pretty, no, they're exactly. They're just pretty ladies. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that my my mother was very confused by my X-Men, like, standum of the, the women in particular. Like, I was obsessed with Storm. Storm, of course, and Emma have that really incredible issue early in that they would never ever do today because it is a little <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> optics like... are a little strange but early in the 80s where um they they swap bodies and so mm-hmm. storm ends up in the white queen costume and actually looks pretty cool in it yeah. um and i i love that they're friends ish now like I, i'm really enjoying in marauders how storm is like i fucking cannot stand this woman like i never wish to speak <laughs> to her except every couple issues they have a moment where it's just like god we are such bad bitches and we have so much respect for each other like it's really fun because back then storm really was absolutely my favorite and i think emma only eclipsed her in sort of the 2000s when i felt like storm got downplayed you know Mm -hmm. like in part because she got sort of sent off to the black panther books more when she she was dating and then married to t'challa um and then the annulment yes which like honestly <laughs> I, I was happy about because to me storm is the leader of the x-men and i'm not i wasn't that interested in her like mm-hmm. going off to do avengers type stuff yeah i mean i think like a lot of like emma's 
like what brings brings out the best in her is when she has begrudging friendships. Yeah. <laughs> They're all begrudging. Yes, the fact that every other like powerful woman in the X Men basically does not like her. <laughs> but at the same time they're kind of like gotta respect the hustle like they you know they yeah. think that she's they think she's like dreadful but at the same time they know that she means really well and mm-hmm. they know that she'll have their back in a dangerous situation and i think that they know that she's mean to them because that's sort of her way of showing affection mm-hmm. and the Marauder stuff has really been pitch perfect on that with, in terms of her relationship with Kitty and her relationship with Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to see more of that just in general. I would love to see, I mean, I, I love the giant size with her and Jean. Oh, the giant size is so good because it's like that callback. Yeah. I would love to see more with her and Jean just generally because their stuff in new X-Men is so visceral and good. And mm-hmm. uh, I think they're fun together. And now that, all of the love square stuff has been sort of resolved <laughs> because on Krakoa, everybody's just doing everybody. Yeah. You know, why not be friends? You, you also need like for a good Emma Jean comic, you need Jean to be written well. Like yeah, she needs to and... be able to bounce off Emma. But, and I don't think that like, I think sometimes when that's like in her very long history and Emma of Emma and Jean, like some t- sometimes writers take a little bit like, I don't know. There's a little bit, like, it's a, there's so many shortcuts, and it's just, like, them being mean to each other without the heart behind it. And you're right. just like, it doesn't, this doesn't jive. Like, we don't like them because they're mean to each other. There's a something behind it. My issue generally with Jean, I would say, is, like, I find that Jean is often not written well. Um, <laughs> like, that's kind of my whole Jean Grey problem because when Jean Grey is written well I think she's an incredible character Mm -hmm. um the whole Phoenix saga into Dark Phoenix saga is obviously one of the absolute pinnacles of the X-Men but then there was a lot of editorial mess around bringing her back uh in X-Factor and then in the 90s I just felt like The thing about Jean is that Jean thinks she knows everything and she's very self-righteous and sanctimonious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting. And sometimes she is right. But the fact that she is so convinced of her own righteousness to the point where she can be a truly dreadful person is what's interesting to me about Jean. And that's why I love Jean and Emma in New Mm X-Men because they're what Morrison basically sets up is that Jean and Emma are both very flawed, very conceited, very arrogant people, but Jean thinks that she's really nice. Right. And Emma is like, I'm a bitch, but like, I know that I'm a bit, it's kind of like selling sunset. (laughs) And you, and Jean, someone needs to write, from a perspective that Jean is wrong a lot of times. That's what I'm and saying. I, like on selling, on selling sunset, like Chrishell is the good guy <laughs> and Christine is the villain. Right. But sometimes mm-hmm. Chrishell is wrong and Christine is right. And sometimes you have sympathetic <laughs> moments with Christine and sometimes you have unsympathetic moments with Chrishell. I'm sorry. I just binged that whole show and I'm, I, I'm fully obsessed with it. Chris, Christine even kind of looks like Emma Frost, actually. There is, there, there's a very uh, snatched 
platinum couture (laughs) vibe yeah yeah um but no i mean i think that's what's most interesting is when like gene as the good girl is complicated by the Mm -hmm. writer and emma as the bad girl is complicated by the writer and i think that often it can just be really flat when it's like oh emma you're such like an evil whore you know and it's like that's not (laughs) because emma's response to that is like yes and Mm -hmm. you know like and you're like a self-righteous bitch who peaked in high school. So like, what do you want from me exactly? <laughs> like, you know, there's no, I think it needs to be, cause there is a respect there, certainly by the end of new X-Men. Um, yeah. And I wish that, and obviously then Jean dies at the end of new X-Men and she was dead for like a long time in, in publication years. So uh, they didn't have much of a chance to, to put them together, but I'm glad that now that they're sort of together in the same space again, that, um, I mean, listen, I just love this new era. I love Hickman's. It's so good. I mean, we've talked about how when Emma pops back up in House of X, Powers of Ten, it's mm-hmm. like, oh my God, thank God this guy understands Emma Frost. Because she's a character where I do feel like, well, you were we were just talking about this the other day, and you said something about sort of how a lot of men write her. I thought it was interesting. Well, I mean, like they they kind of lean into like, and and she is they kind of <laughs> like a slutty mean telepath, right? Is a, right, that's what, like that's and, the surface level thing, right? But like what I find, what Hickman does, and what I think what he gets at the heart of it, and at the heart of Emma, is that she is just as. Like, she is one of the characters or one of the mutants of the X-Men, like Magneto, like Professor X, who has a worldview of, like, the way the mutants are supposed to function in society. Mm -hmm. She has an ethos. And to see, and, like, I don't think Storm really, like, Storm and Jean and, and Cyclops and whatnot, I don't think they really think about, like, the giant picture of it. Like, they're not trying to craft. They're, like, loyal... Right. ...soldiers for Xavier. They believe in his dream... Uh, Storm goes a little rogue in Extreme X-Men at that one moment, but that's really the only time. Otherwise, it really is like, we're here for this. I do mm-hmm. think that as Morrison reinvented her and, and, and as has continued, Hickman really gets this, as does Terry yeah. Duggan, who's writing her on Marauders. Um, you know, you have Xavier who's like, let's forge peace between humans and mutants traditionally Mm -hmm. that's his whole thing and then you have magneto who's like a violent separatist Mm -hmm. and those obviously are worldviews that are in conflict but then morrison's emma in particular uh added sort of a third point to a political triangle in that she has very leftist social politics but she is a minority capitalist like that's mm-hmm. sort of her in the way that there are gay people and people of color who are criticized for sort of capitalist philosophies but their position is i'm building wealth for my people she's mm-hmm. a very like for us by us kind of character exactly her position is that mutants should take control of the free market become wealthy and therefore secure power for themselves in a world that is fundamentally unfair and that you're not like she feels you're basically she she is a radical in a lot of ways but Mm -hmm. not in you know she's she's sort of a radical libertarian which i think is an interesting 
world. And it's fun to like love a character so much who I don't necessarily agree with on everything political. But mm-hmm. her thing, her, her positions are sort of interesting because she's like a, a real cutthroat capitalist shark, except that for mutants, she wants like complete luxury communism. Yes. It's like very specifically <laughs> like we are going to drain the humans dry and use it to provide mutants with everything we could possibly need. And Krakoa is sort of the ultimate evolution of that. And it's mm-hmm. funny you say like there's always this emphasis on the idea that she's slutty or promiscuous or whatever, which like if she was power to her, but she actually isn't like Emma doesn't actually fuck that much no emma does not she doesn't really want anyone to touch her unless she's really decided that you should you know like she's kind of an unapproachable diamond in that way completely but like going back to a little bit about what you said about her functioning in society i think what i relate to and i think or what i find fascinating is that she doesn't want to break the system so much and she knows that she can't like she knows that there's like limitations to it and so she's like i'm going to figure out the best way of this system for me and for the mutants that i want to protect and for the children like that right. was the line in house of x where i was like oh she's in good hands here because her thing even when she was evil her mm. thing is like i need to prepare you know her hellions she's like i need to prepare these kids and give them what they need to survive in a world that hates them. And when she failed at that and the Hellions were murdered, that was when she was like, huh, maybe Xavier is actually smarter than me in terms of his like education methods. Mm-hmm. And that's what inspired her to kind of switch sides. And she's a survivor. Like, yes. it's like, this is how she learned how to survive. Like, also, it's like, that's how... Professor X learned how to survive. That's how Magneto survived. That completely shapes like their politics. So absolutely, it, may, it makes sense that like, okay, well, this is how she navigated through society, and this is, and yes, she does not fuck. She she has no, no sex. There's a really interesting thing there, which is that like, there's a um, there's a mm-hmm. classic X Men backup story at one point where she is talking to. I think it's just a random like Hellfire Club waitress or whatever. Like, I don't think it's Tessa. I think it's just like a, a rando. But mm-hmm. she's basically like, this lingerie is armor. And I present myself in a certain way because men underestimate me when I do. And then I exploit them and this, that. And she sort of lays out. And it's like, you know, it's the 80s. It's a, and a man wrote it. And it's very like a justification <laughs> for why this character wears a thong and a corset. But... Of all the female superhero characters that do dress provocatively, she is the one where I never have any issue with it. Like, I actually love that. I mean, now, sometimes the way it was drawn was obscene. (laughs) But I actually love the new X-Men costume where she just is almost nude and her, her boobs and, like, midriff spell out an X. Mm-hmm. I think that's so funny. I think it's so her. The idea that in New X-Men, everyone agrees, like, we're all going to wear these black and yellow outfits. Like, we've put together essentially a fashion collection, but we have a unified look. And she's like, all right, well, I'll wear <laughs> leather and an X on my body if I have to, but it's going to be white because that's my color. And um, the X is going to be my tits. I just think that's really funny. And I liked I liked it more when she threw the trench coat over it, so it was just mm-hmm. kind. It was a little bit less like ridiculous, but I don't know. There was something about it that really worked. I, especially if you look at Morrison's notes for the for the artist, which mm-hmm. is that she actually is wearing it backwards. 
like <laughs> the way it's designed the ex is supposed to be the like a backless look uh-huh. and that she just looked at it was like actually you know what i'm gonna wear it this way <laughs> but i think that the backstory that was established for her first in generation x and then in um the issue of new x-men where gene invade like violates her mind Mm-hmm. because she suspects that Scott and Emma are having an affair, which, like, they are in their brains, but, like, not really. <laughs> the There are a couple reveals there that are just very, very telling, and that make, like you said, the character's political position makes a lot of sense in the same way that Magneto survived the Holocaust and so is a separatist because he just can't trust that a dominant culture won't... Yeah, won't, ex- won't exterminate him. Yeah. She is someone who was unremarkable to some extent, had an abusive father who tortured her older brother, who she cared deeply about, mm-hmm. and had these conniving sisters who were dreadful. And, you know, she was offered the family money and decided, you know what, fuck you. I'm a telepath. I'm going to go do my own thing. And then moved to New York, started doing survival sex work at the Hellfire Club, Mm -hmm. and telepathically built herself a business empire. She was like one of the original, before there was even an actual tech boom, Emma was like doing that (laughs) at like 25. And, you know, I I think that her position, she's very much a buy your bootstraps kind of person, but she also understands that she has certain, you know, privileges that have enabled her to do that. And so she enjoys helping other mutants achieve their potential, like what she does with Bobby in the 90s, which is sort Mm -hmm. of, that's sort of her whole deal with him is like, could you just get your shit together? Yeah. And then like, even when she's like taking over his body and then is like, I forgot what issue that, what number it is. It's like one, uh, three something. But like, there's a, there's something in there about like, what she wanted for her students and it's like it's it's just all grief about like oh jesus i didn't protect them even when i and then it was like i didn't have cerebro i didn't have any of the any of your doodads yeah like (laughs) i didn't have your advantages charles and i did the best i could and like it turns out i'm a fucking terrible teacher because all of my (laughs) all my students just got murdered he's like well, you're not a terrible teacher, but you have been kind of evil. So maybe let's revisit the evil part. <laughs> um, I really like in New X-Men when Scott, early in New X-Men, Scott is just kind of like, well, you know, Emma, like you did a lot of evil stuff back in the day. Maybe that's why people don't really trust you. And she's like, oh, darling, we were all <laughs> on so many drugs back then <laughs> because it was the 80s. And you can just picture, you have to imagine that the Hellfire Club, like, that is just that the Lord's Cardinals like meeting room is just a huge mirrored table with like a mountain of cocaine and like <laughs> Harry Leland is just like blowing rails. That's a really great way to kind of handle it. Like much like with Magneto, because before you get his sympathetic backstory for the first, you know, in the sixties, Magneto is just evil as shit. Yeah. And so sometimes you need a way to kind of like wave it off. And for her to be like, I uh, was disowned by my parents and became a stripper and got hooked on coke and became a supervillain. so sorry that i am not perfect scott like <laughs> we didn't all get found at 16 by charles xavier we did it 
so, you know, I, I think that she is a survivor. Like, there's that one great line from, I think, the Fraction Run, where it's like, how did I survive apocalyptic fire? I simply refused to feel the flames. Mm. And I I don't like how Joss Whedon wrote her at all, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. But I do love the line, you know, I am a diamond, Miss Pride. I am, by definition, my own best friend. Uh, you know, she knows that no one's going to do it for you. So she's going to do it for herself. And then... Once she has amassed that power, she wants to use it to make sure that other children who are mutants are never abused and taken advantage of the way that she was. Right. There's something really powerful about that. It's in it, and it's powerful in a way that, like, Professor X is, like, I don't know, there's something more real about it, I feel. Yeah. With, like, in, in like, with the best writers writing it, there's something yeah, super, yeah. super real about, like, okay, well, so, like, this, like, Charles doesn't know loss. Like, he, he I mean, he kind of does. He like, kind of does. He lost his mother. He had an abusive stepfather. There was the whole stuff with Juggernaut. Like, but right. he hasn't, um, but he had a very charmed life up until his mother remarried. And he hasn't really known a lot of tragedy Whereas Emma has been through some real shit. Well, yeah. And it's like, it, it, I always feel like with like Charles Xavier, it's always like, well, it's like Gene. Gene is his biggest failure, right? Like, yes. Emma has like 15 genes. <laughs> right, right. It's like Xavier's absolute, fa- I mean, if you, t- if you discount Deadly Genesis, that story, <laughs> which is just like the most abysmal retcon story, because like we get it, Xavier's not actually a good guy. You don't have to literally go to like, there was a whole secret team of students that he led to their deaths and then erased <laughs> everybody's memory of them. It's like, no, we don't need this. But that aside, Xavier's greatest failure is Jean mm-hmm. Grey. She is his star pupil and Jean doesn't fall, and this is obviously they retcon that the Phoenix was not really Jean. That was stupid and Morrison unretconned it, so I don't care. <laughs> and when they were publishing it, certainly it was meant to be Jean. The reason that Phoenix falls, in part, is because Emma Frost, who is introduced in that story, and Mastermind, like, fuck with her head to try and control her for the Hellfire Club, and then realized they really bit off more than they could chew. But... The bigger reason is because Xavier was a morally bankrupt teacher. I mean, there's that incredible scene that is my favorite scene in the Dark Phoenix saga before she becomes Dark Phoenix, where Xavier's trying to recruit Mm -hmm. Kitty, who's also just been introduced. And Kitty's father suddenly decides that Kitty should go to Xavier's. And Scott's like, what just happened? And... Gene is like, oh, Scott, I just changed his opinion with my telepathic powers. <laughs> the professor and I do that all the time. <laughs> and Scott just kind of like turns like Jim in the office directly <laughs> to the reader. And it's just like, what? Because it doesn't take much more from that. Like I said, Jean believes she's mm-hmm. righteous, right? Like she always believes that she's doing the right thing. And it's it's a pretty slippery slope from there to, you know, consuming a star and killing all those broccoli people on Dabari. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that, so yeah, that is Xavier's feeling. And then when you're Emma, you've got Tarot and Cat's Eye and Bevatron and Roulette and Beef and, and Jetstream. Negasonic Teenage Warhead. And Sink. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I think that that's, 
you know, she has all of these students who just straight up died because she couldn't mm-hmm. protect them, which is not necessarily as bad as like them becoming genocidal cosmic beings because she taught them bad mm-hmm. values, but it's pretty bad. And that's why that's the nastiest thing Jean does to her in that new X-Men issue when they fight is show her the corpses of all those dead children, which is truly like, it's a Phil Jimenez splash page that is one of his very best. And, and Emma's just like, please don't mm-hmm. make me look at that. And Jean has just fully gone round yeah. the bend at that point and is like, look at them, you <laughs> look at them. Every child you allowed to die. In a very like exhausting, saintly way that you're just like, oh, Jean. <laughs> that issue is incredible because Jean goes so overboard into like, because that's when Morrison is basically establishing like, no, Jean is the phoenix. You were mistaken <laughs> if you believed that goofy retcon that was supposed to absolve her because she says like at one point she's like the phoenix is here to disinfect the earth emma frost and like when scott and xavier come into the room and scott's just like you're way out of line right now Jean. <laughs> or when she's um or when she's like beating up the u-men and like and everyone's just like what yeah. the fuck is happening <laughs> and, they're like, and i love that i love that xavier is just kind of like so uh gene could you repeat that part about the phoenix coming to disinfect <laughs> the earth because that was that sounded a little concerning the way you said it there. Um, no, I mean, that's just a really great issue because it is a role reversal. And you do see one of my favorite things about Emma is that obviously every superhero character, particularly the women, sometimes the men are allowed to be ugly, but every, every female superhero character is just genetically blessed and happens to be earth shatteringly gorgeous. And I love that in that new X-Men flashback, you see Emma sort of like rebuking her father and striking out on her own. And she has a huge like aquiline nose and no boobs and is naturally like a mousy, dirty blonde Mm -hmm. brown hair color. And Jean's just like saying something else that's relevant. Emma's like, yes, I had cosmetic surgery. What about (laughs) it? You know? And Jean's like, that's not what I'm here to show you. But I find that very refreshing, the idea that, you know, Emma does have fake boobs. Emma is a bottle blonde. Emma, you know, she still has a prominent nose when she's drawn right. And I and, and I Morrison like loves her. loves a nose but, an Emma Frost nose job joke. Or a nose job nose job like aside. Like I love when Sublime's you men like break her <laughs> nose and she's just like, This nose was extremely <laughs> expensive and I am going to fucking kill you. Um, but there was, and there was one in Marauders recently that was really good where she was just like, I needed a bit of a rhinoplasty touch up. So I was doing that. And then this and that, but she's very unashamed. Like her thing is like, look, I wanted to be hot and powerful. Mm-hmm. So I went out and used my psychic power to become rich on my own terms without taking my disgusting father's dirty money. And, uh, then I used that money to become unbelievably hot and if you have a problem with that that's really Mm. your problem and i just think that's again something that's very real about her whereas like a lot of you know super heroines probably have breast implants you know what i mean but like they're never going to talk about them on (laughs) that is psylocke (laughs) oh betsy in her like well now she probably doesn't because her new body she got to sort of craft from scratch so i bet but 
back yeah. in the day when she was yeah. a model? Absolutely. <laughs> I bet she, I bet, I yeah. bet they're who is, who is the, uh, I want to know who the plastic surgeon for all the mutants are because he does extremely great work. Well, you know, at one point, mask <laughs> you know like there is because after the siege perilous like he makes callisto super hot that's like a whole storyline um <laughs> so you know that's definitely a possibility but i do love that yeah i mean everyone's like 511 and just like right everyone is just absolutely stunning and in emma's case it's like yeah i am stunning i paid a lot of money to be this stunning and now I'm going to wear whatever I fucking will, please. Thank you for in this body that I paid uh, to look perfect. It's in. also the whole idea of like women's bodies and the way we think about them. It's, it's work. And for Emma, it's like, I'm going to show you what this work did. Like, it's like, and you're right. not going to shame me exactly. for wanting to do something that is, has been taught to me is beautiful. Like you're not going to, you're, you're, I'm yeah. not going to get shame for that. Like, it's like you, we, we constantly tell women, like, this is how you're supposed to look. You're not supposed to look like this. And then when they actually change themselves to look like that, then they get made fun of all over again. And it's like... Right. It's like, why should I be ashamed that I had plastic surgery when you tell me that women need to be beautiful in order to matter? Like, she's very much that kind of attitude. And I think that it's refreshing in, in comics because it's very mm-hmm. unique. And it's another way that she's just kind of like positioned in in opposition to gene because gene at like 16 in the 60s issues is so naturally gorgeous that she gets hired <laughs> as a model you know like things like that so and emma's just like i have clawed my way to every you know goofy cheesecakey tit shot you could possibly <laughs> draw me in and by god we are gonna do this and that's why it never feels exploitative to me again obviously i'm not a woman and like any woman's opinion on this is gonna you know outweigh mine but i do think that i like when when superhero books address that like i've talked about um in the first episode i mentioned and i'll do it in more depth at some point in a polaris episode but i love in the 90s x factor when polaris you know it's like i fucking hate my body and starts overcompensating by wearing this very sexy because like in the 90s every female superhero started wearing a much skimpier costume it was like sue storm was the most outrageous one where it was like here's the invisible woman like the four is a tip cut out now and she's like in a thong and it was like this is so out of character it's absurd and so polaris starts wearing like one of those absurd 90s costumes and everybody just kind of turns to her and is like what are you doing <laughs> this and then then she like goes to therapy and it's like i hate my body and i'm like so like you know i like when stuff like that sort of sort of comes up and i think emma is playful about it in a way where it can be fun and it can be funny and it never really feels like the if it's written when it's written well it doesn't feel like the writer is mocking her for being really image conscious or for dressing Mm -hmm. the way she does it feels like it's just sort of like this is emma take her or leave her she has an aesthetic that she's really into I don't know. It's kind of a separate sort of origin story for a character. So speaking of origin stories, that's probably a good moment to segue uh, into the character overview, um, the Cerebro character file. I'm going to just go over uh, Emma's publication history from her first appearance in the Dark Phoenix saga up through her time with Generation X and sort of the reinvention of the character by Grant Morrison in New X-Men, 
and sort of up to the present because it is wild that someone who was kind of a second string after like Mag- you know Magneto and Apocalypse or whatever those are like the real big guns she was more of a of a second tier X-Men villain and now she's one of the most important X-Men and that's that's a really wild character trajectory so I'm excited to delve into it and then we will come back here to talk about your favorite Emma Frost storylines and brainstorm a little about what we'd like to see for the characters. So we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. All right, buckle up, everybody. This one is a journey. Emma Frost, the White Queen, debuted in January 1980 in Uncanny X-Men 129, God Spare the Child, an early installment of the now-legendary Dark Phoenix saga and also the first appearance of Kitty Pryde. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, Emma was initially presented as one of the X-Men's most ruthless enemies, but over the years she developed enormously as a character, eventually becoming an ally to Xavier's cause. Since Grant Morrison's critically acclaimed run on New X-Men from 2001 to 2004, Emma Frost has been generally portrayed as one of the core members of the X-Men, and is now one of Marvel's most prominent female superheroes. In her initial appearances, the White Queen is established as part of the Inner Circle, a chess piece-themed coterie also called the Lord's Cardinal. They control the Manhattan branch of the Hellfire Club, a decadent centuries-old private social club for the wealthy. Unbeknownst to most of the club's membership, the Lord's Cardinal are powerful mutants who have exploited their superhuman gifts to build one of the world's most powerful white-collar crime syndicates. Frost, a skilled telepath, is the chairman and CEO of the conglomerate Frost International, which she uses to help fund the club's illegal dealings, and also the headmistress of the Massachusetts Academy, a secret school for young mutants rivaling Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. She is the partner in crime and sometime lover of Sebastian Shaw, the leader of the Lord's Cardinal, who calls himself the Black King. Claremont and Byrne based the Hellfire Club and its BDSM-tinged period costumes on A Touch of Brimstone, a 1966 episode of the British espionage television program The Avengers, unrelated to Marvel's superhero team of the same name, and named Emma Frost after Diana Riggs' spy protagonist Emma Peel, who infiltrates the club in the episode. The Avengers episode was itself inspired by the real historical Hellfire Club, an infamous 18th-century social club for wealthy 'er ne'er-do-wells in Britain and Ireland. Early in the Dark Phoenix saga, the White Queen attempts to recruit Kitty Pryde as a student for her Massachusetts Academy before the girl can be found by Xavier. When the X-Men arrive to speak with Kitty themselves, Frost captures and tortures them. Kitty calls in the rest of the team for backup, and Frost is forced into a telepathic duel with Jean Grey, then called Phoenix, whose psychic abilities are several orders of magnitude more powerful than the White Queen's. Frost is believed killed in a suicide attack after losing her battle with Phoenix, but in truth is simply left comatose and slowly rebuilds her own mind piece by piece. It's subsequently revealed that sometime earlier, the White Queen invented a mind-tap telepathic device, which the Hellfire Club's associate Jason Wingard, the evil mutant mastermind, has been using to project his illusions directly into Jean Grey's mind and corrupt her into serving the club. Mastermind's enhanced illusions succeed in brainwashing Phoenix into becoming the new Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, but she soon breaks free of his control, only to destroy his mind and complete her malevolent transformation into the power-corrupted cosmic being called Dark Phoenix. The White Queen next appears in November 1981's Uncanny X-Men 151, recovered from her battle with the now-deceased Phoenix. Frost telepathically compels Kitty Pride's parents to withdraw her from Xavier's and transfer her to the Massachusetts Academy. 
At the same time, she uses her powers to switch bodies with the X-Man Storm in order to destroy the team from within. Storm, trapped in Frost's body, uses her lockpicking skills to break free from the Academy and return to Xavier's, where she does battle with Frost. By story's end, the two women are restored to their proper bodies, and the Hellfire Club concedes that Kitty's place is with the X-Men, at least for now. Soon afterward, Frost is again put into a coma by a mysterious assailant, who is eventually revealed to be a recovered mastermind. She remains in this condition for a few years of publication, eventually returning in 1984's Uncanny X-Men 180, where she attempts to recruit Kitty's friend Doug Ramsey to her school, but is foiled by Kitty and fellow Xavier student Ilyana Rasputin. Over the course of the 80s, Emma becomes a prominent antagonist in the spin-off book The New Mutants, where her own students, called the Hellions, become the chief rivals to Xavier's new class, which Ramsey joins instead. In the 1984 miniseries Firestar, the comic's debut of the title character, originally from the cartoon Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, the White Queen manipulates Firestar into joining the Hellions, but her deceptions are ultimately revealed and Firestar departs to become a superhero. Two years later, in the 1986 company-wide event Secret Wars 2, the New Mutants are murdered and resurrected by the cosmic being the Beyonder, leaving them traumatized and near catatonic. Their headmaster, a reformed Magneto, who has been placed in charge of the school by the absent Charles Xavier, is approached by the White Queen, who encourages him to transfer his students to the Massachusetts Academy, where she can use her telepathy to help ease their post-traumatic stress. Emma's most unscrupulous and difficult student, the Hellion Empath, uses his empathic powers to subtly convince Magneto that this is the right course of action. When Magneto realizes he has been manipulated, he moves to recover the new mutants from Frost, who ultimately reveals her interest in healing the children is genuine. She and Magneto collaborate to cure his students of the psychic damage caused by the Beyonder, and the new mutants, once recovered, choose to return to Xavier's with Magneto. The Hellfire Club and the X-Men then enter into an uneasy truce, and Frost, Sebastian Shaw, and the new Black Queen, Selene, invite Magneto to join the Inner Circle, an offer he accepts. Privately, Emma and Selene grow close with Magneto, and, after the 1989 X-Men franchise-wide event Inferno causes the new mutants to lose their trust in Magneto as headmaster, the two women conspire with Magneto to oust Shaw from the Lord's Cardinal. Magneto names himself Grey King, ruler of both the black and the white factions of the club. In 1991's Uncanny X-Men 281, not long after Chris Claremont's unexpected departure from the X-Men franchise, Emma and her Hellions are attacked alongside the X-Men by the time-traveling assassin Trevor Fitzroy, who uses a battalion of reprogrammed Sentinels to overpower the White Queen. She is forced to enter a psychic coma to survive the attack, and while she is unconscious, all of her students save Empath are slaughtered by Fitzroy and his Sentinels. The reader learns that Fitzroy is one of the Upstarts, a group of thrill-seeking killers who hunt high-profile targets as part of a playful competition, and that they have been secretly funded by Selene to eliminate her rivals in the Lord's Cardinal. Emma remains in this third coma for a long time, kept in sickbay at Xavier's. In 1994's Uncanny X-Men 313, an accident in the med lab causes Frost to awaken from her coma in the body of Iceman rather than her own. Believing herself the X-Men's prisoner, she uses Iceman's powers in astonishing ways no one has seen before, and escapes to discover what became of her students. Upon learning that the Hellions were butchered in her absence, Frost is overcome by grief, excoriating herself for failing the children she had sworn to protect. She's convinced by Charles Xavier to abandon the Hellfire Club and begin a new chapter in her life. Back in her own body, Emma teams up with the X-Men to battle the techno-organic alien race called the Phalanx, 
and she and the X-Men Banshee rescue a group of young mutant teenagers who become a new class of students called Generation X. Xavier entrusts this team to the tutelage of Emma and Banshee. Gen X begins their training at the Massachusetts Academy rather than at Xavier's, and Emma is grateful for this second chance to be a teacher for young mutants in need of guidance. Emma begins an uneasy journey toward heroism as the mentor to Generation X, regarded with suspicion by her fellow mentor Banshee. She grows closer with her new students, and in 1997's Generation X number 24, by writer Scott Lobdell, we get our first glimpse at Emma's life before she joined the Hellfire Club. She reveals to her female students that when she was a teenager like them, her telepathic powers catalyzed, and her parents had her institutionalized as a schizophrenic. It's implied that while she was held against her will, she was sexually abused by the institution's guards. Eventually, she learned to control her powers and took over the guards' minds in order to escape. Generation X also introduces readers to Emma's two sisters, each with a psychic power of her own, from whom Emma has been estranged for many years. Emma's younger sister, dark-haired rebel Cordelia, is an empath with designs on the Hellfire Club, while Emma's older sister, the auburn-haired Adrienne, is a ruthless businesswoman with the power of psychometry, psychically reading the history of objects. As with certain other previously established sets of mutant siblings, like Cyclops and Havoc, the Frost women are immune to one another's mutant powers. When Frost International falls into financial ruin, Emma turns to Adrienne, desperate enough to go to her hated sister for a loan. Adrienne is able to use her psychometry to learn the true nature of the Massachusetts Academy, and in exchange for the necessary funds to keep the school open, she demands to be made co-headmistress. Adrienne opens the school to the public, taking on human students, and while she appears at first to be benevolent, she privately works to destroy Emma's life. Adrienne quietly instigates anti-mutant sentiment around the Academy, and then reveals its secret status as a mutant training ground to the whole world. She sets a bomb within the school that kills Gen X member Everett Thomas, codenamed Sink. Devastated, Emma confronts Adrienne and, unable to affect her sister with telepathy, uses a pistol to gun the other Frost down in cold blood. She hides this murder from the surviving members of Gen X, and when they figure out what has happened, they are horrified. The team disbands, and this story, spanning from 2000 to 2001, marked the end of the long-running Generation X book. Emma Frost next appears as a primary cast member in Grant Morrison's New X-Men, which launched later that year in 2001. After murdering her sister and closing the Massachusetts Academy, Emma moves to the island nation of Genosha, formerly an anti-mutant apartheid state, but now a mutant sovereign nation led by Magneto. There she becomes a teacher once again, training young Genosian telepaths to hone their powers. One of her students, Ellie Femister, codenamed Negasonic Teenage Warhead, precognitively foresees the destruction of Genosha by the new villain Cassandra Nova, but it is too late to stop the coming genocide. Sixteen million mutants are slaughtered when Cassandra Nova's new evolving sentinels attack Genosha, and Emma is one of only a handful of survivors. She emerges from the wreckage of her classroom carrying Femister's corpse, her own body transformed into organic diamond, a secondary mutation she spontaneously developed in the blast. Disquieted by her new power and devastated at losing her students once again, Emma is convinced to formally join the X-Men and begins teaching a telepathy class at Xavier's. Her star pupils are a hive mind of quintuplets called the Stepford Cuckoos, or the Five-in-One, and Emma and her girls prove themselves to the team when Cassandra Nova, Xavier's long-lost twin sister, sort of, it's very cool but very complicated, so don't worry about it right now, 
takes control of Xavier's body and reveals the secret nature of the Xavier School to the whole world on national television. Emma successfully tricks Cassandra Nova into entering the body of an alien shapeshifter, wiping the villain's mind and beginning a telepathic re-education. Over the course of her early missions with the X-Men, Emma grows close to Scott Summers, the X-Men Cyclops, who is suffering from PTSD after his body was possessed in an earlier storyline by the ancient evil mutant Apocalypse. The resultant changes to his outlook and personality have heavily strained his marriage to Jean Grey, and Emma playfully offers her services as a sexual therapist, making an advance on Scott when they are alone together on a mission. It's not clear to the reader whether he accepts her offer, but over the ensuing months they embark on a telepathic affair, sharing illicit thoughts using Emma's powers. This continues through the storyline Riot at Xavier's, in which the telepathic student Quentin Quire starts a gang and attempts to impress his unrequited crush, Sophie of the Stepford Cuckoos. Ultimately, Sophie sacrifices her life to stop Quentin and his gang's drug-fueled rampage in the school, leaving Emma heartbroken and estranged from the other cuckoos who blame her for Sophie's death. Jean, suspicious of Emma and Scott's relationship, ultimately discovers Emma in a compromising position in her husband's head. Enraged, and back in touch with the Phoenix Force that once drove her to cosmic depravity, Jean violates Emma's mind and tears through her memories for evidence of Emma and Scott's adultery. Emma fights back, but is once again no match for the Phoenix in terms of telepathic power. In this issue, 2003's New X-Men 139, Morrison reveals more of Emma's backstory. He introduces her father Winston, a cruel and heartless man, and her older brother Christian, the only sibling she cared for, who suffered from drug addiction and was later institutionalized after a psychotic break. With Christian unable to take over the family business, Winston considers each of his daughters in turn, horrifying Adrienne when he decides Emma is the best suited for power. Emma, disgusted by him, refuses to take any of his money and leaves the house never speaking to her family again until her sisters appeared in Generation X. Ultimately, Scott demands Jean read his mind, and it is revealed that back when Emma first propositioned him, he denied her advances. Instead, they stayed up all night talking and grew genuinely close, and while their telepathic affair has certainly been inappropriate, they have never had physical sex. Scott is appalled by Jean's violation of Emma, which drives a permanent wedge in their already strained marriage. In the immediate aftermath, as she is gathering herself together, Emma is apparently murdered, shattered into thousands of diamond pieces by an unknown assailant. The attacker is revealed to be Esme, one of the surviving Stepford Cuckoos, who resents being part of a hive mind and has decided to strike out on her own. Emma is pieced back together like a puzzle by Hank McCoy, and Jean uses the Phoenix Force to reanimate her, now understanding Scott needs Emma in some capacity. In the final arc of New X-Men, Esme of the Cuckoos joins forces with Magneto, who was believed dead in the genocide of Genosha but actually survived, addicted to the brain-warping and power-boosting drug Kick. Magneto and Esme's new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants takes over New York City, and in the ensuing battle, Magneto kills both Esme and Jean Grey, only to be in turn executed by Wolverine. For the record, this Magneto was immediately retconned by Marvel into an imposter, which hurts this story but makes sense because they want to keep Magneto around. Xavier, realizing his time is over and his ideas are out of date, cedes control of the school to Scott and Emma, who become co-headmasters and an official couple after Jean, ascended once more as the Phoenix, encourages Scott from beyond the grave to let go of his guilt and be happy. During the run of New X-Men, after issue 139, an ongoing series called Emma Frost by writer Carl Bowlers ran for 18 issues from 2003 to 2004, 
This book delved deeper into Emma's backstory, depicting her life in high school and college, and did not fit into continuity with the history previously established in Generation X. For the most part, this series has been ignored by subsequent writers, but it established two points that have remained consistent. Emma's middle name, Grace, and the fact that her older brother Christian is gay. Their father couldn't accept this and had Christian's boyfriend deported, which led to Christian's descent into substance abuse. This is why Emma refused her father's offer to be his heir. It would be later revealed that Christian's eventual psychotic break, depicted in New X-Men 139, was brought on by anti-gay conversion therapy his father forced him to undergo. After New X-Men, Emma settles into her role as headmistress at Xavier's. Over the course of Joss Whedon's astonishing X-Men, she comes into conflict with her old would-be student Kitty Pride. But it's ultimately revealed that Emma herself invited Kitty back to the school, knowing Kitty would keep Emma's darker impulses in check. In the 2005 company-wide crossover event House of M, Wanda Maximoff, the reality-warping superheroine called the Scarlet Witch, has lost her sanity and becomes a threat to the entire world. Emma insists that the Avengers kill Wanda, but they refuse, and ultimately, at the climax of the event, Wanda strikes out at her father Magneto by attempting to erase mutants from existence. The intervention of Doctor Strange prevents her from succeeding completely, but what results is the decimation. Only approximately 198 mutants remain empowered, with all others around the world transformed into normal humans. Emma is one of the few to retain her mutant powers, and dedicates herself to protecting the tiny population of her species that still exists, as well as seeking a way to reverse the decimation. Around this time, she learns the Stepford Cuckoos are her biological daughters, cloned by the Weapon Plus project from Ova harvested without her knowledge back when she was comatose all those years ago. Emma and Cyclops eventually found Utopia, a mutant haven in the Pacific Ocean, outside of United States jurisdiction. Most of the 198 remaining mutants flock to Utopia, though after a dispute in 2011, some mutants choose instead to follow Wolverine back to Xavier's, which he renames the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning and entrusts to Kitty Pride. The Utopia status quo lasts until the 2012 company-wide crossover event Avengers vs. X-Men in which the Phoenix Force returns to Earth and is split into pieces, which take root in five different mutants on Utopia. Cyclops, Colossus, Magic, Namor the Submariner, and Emma Frost. Driven to megalomania by the raw cosmic power, the so-called Phoenix Five are eventually stopped by the Avengers. The Scarlet Witch, sane once more, disperses the Phoenix Force and manages to restore a substantial proportion of the decimated mutant population but not before a phoenix-possessed Cyclops has ruined his relationship with Emma and, more unforgivably, murdered Charles Xavier for defying him. This leads directly into the all-new X-Men era under writer Brian Michael Bendis. Emma, Scott, and Magic escape from prison and go on the run with Magneto, becoming fugitives to find and train newly awakened mutants. And while she is still angry with Scott, she sticks by his side in a platonic fashion and continues to train the three surviving Stepford Cuckoos, as well as a time-displaced teenage Jean Grey, with whom Emma forges an unlikely bond. Then comes the Inhumans vs. X-Men era, which is just the worst, and this segment is already running long, so I'm just going to cover it very briefly. The Terrigen mist that empowers Inhumans turns out to be toxic to mutants, and as it spreads across the globe, it causes a fatal disease called M-Pox. Cyclops is infected and killed, and Emma suffers a psychotic break in her grief, using telepathic illusions to trick the other X-Men into believing Scott is still alive, while she reprograms Sentinels to massacre the Inhumans. Yeah, it sucks. 
This seemingly editorially mandated direction, which made Emma into a villain again, was overwhelmingly unpopular with the apparent majority of fans, who felt it had thrown out 20 years of character development. The stories that followed quickly backpedaled Emma into a more ambiguous character, though she remained estranged from the X-Men. In a 2018 arc in the Iceman solo title, Emma reunites with her beloved brother Christian, who has manifested mutant powers and is trapped in a delusion with an astral projection of their now-dead father Winston. With Iceman's help, Emma helps Christian regain his sanity. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Emma is approached by Charles Xavier, who got better, and Magneto to join them in founding a new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. Emma agrees for the sake of mutant children everywhere and becomes part of Krakoa's leadership, the Quiet Council. Re-establishing the Hellfire Club as the Hellfire Trading Company alongside her one-time lover and longtime enemy, Sebastian Shaw, Emma creates a shipping concern to manage the flow of the Krakoan miracle drugs that have compelled most nations to recognize Krakoan sovereignty. She convinces Kitty Pride to become the Red Queen, leader of a third branch of the club, and to lead a team of X-Men who will observe the shipping routes and the black market for Krakoan drugs as well as liberate refugees from countries that refuse to let their mutant citizens defect to Krakoa. Kitty calls this new group of mutant pirates the Marauders, reclaiming the name of an evil group that once grievously wounded her, and she and Emma embark on a bold new era for mutant kind. What will happen next is anyone's guess, but I can't imagine it's going to be a good time for Sebastian Shaw. X-Men, X-Men. So that was a bracing journey through... The life of one Emma Frost. Why we love Emma Frost. Yeah. What are your favorite Emma stories? What are your favorite, like, Emma moments over the years? What's your, if you had to point someone to, like, an Emma Frost story you really love, what is it? And then we'll get into the stuff we fucking hate. Oh, my God. I I mean, (laughs) like you said, like, like Morrison, that's the best. It's, like, the the whole, like, like, he just really nails her in a way that like it's so realist and so believable and so human in a way that she wasn't before to me and it's and it's just like oh well this is this totally like it's almost like the key that unlocks that unlocks everything because you're just like well now that we know this and now that she's experienced this everything else locks into place like all this all the jumbled stuff that happened before all that weird like why is this lady wearing like weird kinky shit all the time why is this lady so mean? Why is she like this? It's like, oh, yes, we get it now. Yeah, and, and Gen X, I was never super into Gen X, which mm-hmm. is kind of, in retrospect, interesting, because I love Monet. Monet has become one of my favorite X-Men over the last... But don't you feel like in Gen X, like, for, at least for the first part, like, Monet is a better Emma Frost than Emma Frost? Yeah, that's what's interesting, <laughs> is, like, the Emma in Gen X, and I get that it's that was a real tall order which was like turn this woman who has been portrayed as like a total evil psychopath into like a teacher who is a good guy Mm -hmm. and i i think that it was awkward at first but the emma in gen x is not quite fully formed to me she has fabulous white suits that i that i think are very chic Mm -hmm. and i do like that christmas eve issue where she tells the the girls they're like bonding talking about their past and she's like well um when i was a teenager, my, my telepathic powers activated, and my parents sent me to an insane asylum, and I was abused by the guards until I realized that I could control their minds, and I escaped. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the, these teenage girls are just like, 
wow. <laughs> but they all feel much closer with her after that. It has a Morrison era. It, that almost feels like where the character starts to, yeah. to click. Because she's like, I've been through some real gnarly shit, and I don't want any of you girls to go through anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, well, the issue with Monet, and I'm going to do, I have plans for a Monet episode that I think, I feel like I'm probably going to have to do a Monet week, because Monet is the most <laughs> complicated, like, it's going to be like a three-episode week or something, because just figuring out Monet's backstory, because initially she wasn't even supposed to really exist, right? She was like the twins. The twins were, had <laughs> merged into a form that wasn't a real person. And, and it's like that. Thank God that got retconned because she's a great character now. But I think it's weird that we don't see Emma and Monet interact more now mm-hmm. because she really is like Emma's most successful student. And they're so much alike. Oh, they're very much like, yeah. In temperament and in upbringing. I mean, Monet's dad happened to be nice, which is, you know, good. But they just have a lot in common. I would love to see like an Emma and Monet adventure at some point. Because you know that now that Monet's like, the Gen X kids are what, probably like 24, 25 now. Mm-hmm. Um, like sliding time scale. You know that she's probably just like, oh, listen, I'm not like 16 anymore, Emma. Like I can handle myself. Mm-hmm. You know, Emma's like, okay, fine. If you must <laughs> be all independent, I will allow you to, you know. I just think that they would be, it would be fun to watch them interplay. What I would really like to see actually is something with Emma and the, the Hellions, like the original Hellions, because they're back. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have a scene where like the Stepford Cuckoos and Monet and Jubilee and Husk sit down with like, tarot and roulette and cat's eye and just lovingly talk shit about emma because that would be really fun or just talk shit about jane well that would also be fun but (laughs) i i really just love the idea of emma getting to see those kids again i mean she changed her whole life because she felt she had failed them Mm -hmm. and there was no way to to fix it and to bring them back and now they're back Mm-hmm. And Taro and Roulette in particular, I always thought had really cool powers and were sort of interesting, fun characters. Like Roulette was like this sort of trashy girl from Atlantic City. <laughs> like they were fun. <laughs> and I would love to see them. Oh, you know, and you could even bring in Mercury and Dust. Mm-hmm. Well, I I feel like Dust is one of those like, yikes. Things. Do you yeah. think? I don't know. It's just like you made a character Muslim from Afghanistan and her power is sand. And it's just like I get that, but I don't you know, it, it's well it's very Claremont. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like, like <laughs> it's like, uh oh, like your superpower is a little bit of an ethnic stereotype. <laughs> it's not it's not it's not perfect, but I think Dust is a character that has a lot of potential and yeah. um I always, fe- I always felt like... I just feel super unqualified as, like, a not-Muslim person to yeah. say what anyone <laughs> should do with this, but I do think that that's a character that you could really do interesting stuff with at some point. And I, I actually really like the idea of having her interact more with Emma, because obviously their philosophies on, like, how you present yourself right. to the world and to men are very, very different. And it's also, um, I, I feel like, naturally... And again, like with the right writer, right? Like, Dust could be awesome with the right writer. I would love to see G. Willow Wilson do something with Dust. That would be, like, really cool to me. But I also I also feel like there's more of, a, of an, like, affinity with Storm there. And so her, when Dust was with Emma on that team, I thought that was, like, an interesting thing. It was like, oh, 
you're going to move her. They're going to like kind of interact with each other and bounce off each other. It didn't quite. I just felt like they didn't quite do a ton of stuff there. No, but but I don't know. That's an interesting character. I would just love to see Emma interacting more with her past students because her students right. are so important to her, and particularly with the ones who died. Like the <laughs> fact that we haven't had a scene where she talks to the like. I know Empath is in like the current Hellions book, but Empath is the one who didn't die in the first place. He's the right. one who got away. So the fact that we don't have a scene of her, t- like I don't care that much about like a beef and Bevatron, mm-hmm. but like the girls on the Hellions were always fun, and I think Emma had a lot of affection for them and it's weird that like she and taro aren't like having tea together or like negasonic the problem there is that because everybody loved the oc negasonic teenage warhead in the deadpool movie the comics brought her back and made her that character from the deadpool movie oh did they so yeah so who's a great character but that isn't the character that emma Loved. It isn't the character that I'm right. So you'd have to sort of find a way. Emma would have to be like, wow, new look, huh? <laughs> you know, which could be fun. And God knows Emma loves a makeover. So she could be like, you shaved your head. That's a, you're back from the dead and you're bald. I love that <laughs> for you. She's just like a strong pair of earrings can make that. Well, because that scene in New X-Men, it's the first scene where Emma's diamond form has manifested her secondary mutation and saved her from from the genocide in Genosian, she carries Negasonic Teenage Warhead's corpse out of the destroyed schoolroom. And she's like, this is Ellie Femister. She has chosen the name Negasonic Teenage Warhead. She will be a credit to her family and to other species, like bring her to a hospital. And they're like, Emma, this girl is dead. Yeah. And she's just like, no, actually that can't possibly be like, this cannot possibly be happening to me again. And they're just like, Emma, she's been dead for hours. Yeah. Like this girl's <laughs> real dead. So, which I, and then the way she, you know, Whedon tried to play with that, but I just really, I really hated how Whedon wrote Emma. I, I thought that he spent his whole, this is why, cause I, so many people love astonishing and, um, well, I just I mean, don't, I mean, in the context of what we know now and like what people and like what's come out since then, I feel like... About him? Yeah. I'm not going to go into too much of that on this podcast because God knows, you know... You could, but like, I think now it's just like, okay, well... Well, I was... I'll just say I'm a Charisma Carpenter super fan and have been since I was 15 years old and that's all I have to say about that. But (laughs) there is a way that he tends to write and regard um, women who are sort of self-assuredly sexual and mature, and it's never very uh, friendly to them. I'll say that. I mean, I just find the way he writes her in Astonishing, apart from the fact that he gives her a couple very good one-liners, which of course he's good at. Amazing lines. Yeah, like, we have learned the first lesson, they will always hate us. And the one I said about, like, I am a diamond, like, she has a couple really great lines in that run, but... I found the way he wrote her relationship with Kitty to be very um, off in terms of how they had interacted previously back in the 80s. And I also just didn't like that he basically wrote her as a crazy person. (laughs) And he implied that the reason she joined the X-Men at all was because Cassandra Nova had like compelled her to tell it. Like it was just as a trap or I don't know. 
it felt like it undermined the character to me and I really didn't like it. And there's that whole arc that's just about like, Emma goes crazy because she's a wacky lady. And yeah. like, you know. <laughs> it's like, what's real? What's not What's real? real and what's not? I don't know. It's just, to me, it was, it was poor. And I do think that in the years following that, there are some writers who really get her, like Kieran Gillen. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there are some writers where it felt like they were just kind of doing Morrison cosplay. <laughs> and it just didn't feel as as right. Like, I, here's the thing about Morrison's Emma. He writes her as the world's funniest drag queen. <laughs> like, he really leans into the idea that she... Because that's what she does, right? Like, she is doing drag. She's doing, like, gender as a performance. She is hyper-feminine, and every look she makes is, like, completely... Just the fact that she is a cis woman Mm -hmm. doesn't make what she's doing not drag. And so the way... You know, he adds the thing that has become very identified with the character, which is the idea that she speaks with a fake British accent. Mm-hmm. And in my head, it's a little more mid-Atlantic. Like, I don't think she's literally speaking an RP accent, but <laughs> I do think that, like, listen, my father's family is from Boston, and I bet, she, like, naturally, she has a horrendous, like, Kennedy-style Boston Brahmin accent, mm-hmm. and that she has very purposely tailored it so that it sounds more like a Catherine Hepburn, kind of like, you know, old Hollywood are you British? Are you American? What is, what is, because in the Morrison run, it's like first, you first hear about it because a cab driver's like, is that a British accent? She yeah. doesn't answer. She's just like, eh, but I'm, hmm. But I also think to that, like, I feel like Morrison, one of the things that he was really interested in, and it's like, it's it maybe not like a big thing, but like a, in the first few pages, he's like, well, we're trying to figure out our appearance, right? Like we have to make ourselves look like I think it's a line between Wolverine and Professor X and the team and they're like talking and they're just like, how do you like your new uniform? And he's like, we don't, we, and he says something to the effect of like, we shouldn't look like superheroes. Maybe if we don't look like superheroes, like in like the spandex and whatnot, people will treat us better. Like Emma is the complete like extreme of that. It's like, this is the appearance that I'm going to give. Look how people treat me. Look the way, Mm -hmm. look at it the way he plays with that and well her iconic line that i this was my like facebook cover image and my twitter header for years is that one line where um after cassandra nova has exposed the existence of the xavier school to the whole world emma is giving sort of a lecture to the student body and she closes it with the whole world is watching us now we must be nothing less than fabulous <laughs> and a great line. Yeah, I mean, I think about that line all the time. Like, that is... I told Grant Morrison once that that scene made me want to be Emma Frost when I grew up. Mm. And uh, he told me, and, and I can't do a Scottish accent, so I went to try to, he was like, you're clearly doing a great job. And I was like, thank <laughs> you very much. And then he signed my new X-Men omnibus, which, like, I would say, like, my animals and then that would be, like, probably the first things I would save in a fire. <laughs> but, um... You know, there's just something very, and it's funny because there are things about her that are terrible. When she was evil, she did horrible things. She murdered Firestar's horse butter rum <laughs> to to manipulate Firestar into joining the hell. She really like, wanted some to teach some kids, and she was willing. She did not have Cerebro. I promised someone. Someone was like, "You're such an Emma apologist. You have to bring up butter rum." And I was just like, "R.I.P. Butter rum." <laughs> 
Emma was at the time, by her own admission, doing a lot of drugs and and doing a lot of evil stuff, and she apologizes for you know being evil. Um, maybe butter rum can be resurrected somehow using Krakoan technology. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if horses can can be reborn through the five, but it's worth a maybe, shot. Maybe he can do the crucible. Yeah, something. <laughs> Figure out some way. You know, Firestar deserves to have that horse back. It's been thirty years. Despite it all, there is something that I just find very aspirational about this character. I think part of it for me, I come from, you know, my father built himself from nothing. And I come from a very comfortable background because of that. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something about this character refusing to accept generational wealth and instead sort of striking out on her own and doing anything she needed to do to live her life on her own terms that I find very, uh, and my dad's really nice to be clear. So it's not like I had some reason to rebuke him like Emma did, but I think it's still just, it just gets me where I live, I guess. It's the same way that I felt very attacked by the movie Knives Out, but like in a good way where I really enjoyed it, but I was just like, drag me. <laughs> one of the, one of like the no good children in that movie is like literally works in publishing. And I'm just like, fuck me. <laughs> um, but no, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, there's something about someone so uncompromising and she truly is an uncompromising person. And I like that she's been given space to grow morally over the course of her publication without compromising sort of her, her core values. She's just using them now for in a productive way. Yeah, I do think that there's something also with just like, she's not the most powerful mutant ever. And it's like, no, and it's like, she's, and when she, when, when people talk about like the fights that she's been in or like whether or how she compares to all the other telepaths, it's always like, she's crafty. Like, she knows how, like, she can, she can completely, she could end Rachel Summers, even though Rachel Summers has so much more power than her, because she right. knows how to, what to do and how to use it. Exactly. Like, she's not, it's not raw power. She's not an Omega-level mutant. She is not a telepath on the level of Xavier or Jean or even Betsy. Mm-hmm. But she is so precise and brilliant in how she uses her power that she is effectively one of the most powerful telepaths in the world because raw power versus finesse you know it's two different metrics but she can go toe-to-toe with someone like rachel Mm -hmm. and make it work because even if rachel is more powerful than her rachel is like a blunt instrument and emma is like a stiletto knife or heel and she's like depending long enough that like she knows what to do like yeah i mean like in my head emma frost is like 40 and lying about it like that's (laughs) sort of my i do because with the sliding time scale like i know that you have to give people some wiggle room but let's say kitty pride is 25 now Mm -hmm. which i think is probably about right right then the original x-men like Scott and Jean have got to be in their like early thirties because Hank celebrated his 35th birthday on panel in the nineties. So, Mm -hmm. and they were all around the same age. 
Yeah, they're only like a year younger than him. So even if you haven't aged them past that, because they have to stay at like prime superhero age, I like to think that Emmett is a little bit older than them. And there's that great moment in New X-Men where like the Stepford Cuckoos call her an old woman and she's just like, I am 27. And it's just like, <laughs> Emma, honey, you're not 27. Like, <laughs> like maybe you're 35, but like we all know you're not 27. Um, but there's something kind of great about like, rooting for a character that had to work for it, essentially. It's just like, she's yeah, not... she has the life experience. She did it herself. She refused to, I mean, apart from Sebastian Shaw, who she really was using, mm-hmm. which he didn't get because he's an arrogant piece of shit. <laughs> and, and as far as she's concerned, yeah, if a man wants to be used, wants to like give me things, I am absolutely going to take those things. <laughs> Um, because I've earned those things. So, you know, which I guess brings us to Inhumans versus X-Men, which I do feel like we have to address briefly. I'm, I'm deeply, there's a deep sigh there. I just pushed my hair back. I had to adjust. Here's my thing. Given everything we have just said about Emma Frost, there are two things that I just can't see her ever, ever doing. And one is intentionally harming children, killing, intentionally killing children. And the other is losing her fucking mind over a man. Like, those are the two most insulting things you could do to that character. And so to have her go, my boyfriend's died. Now I have lost my mind. Like, I'm in a mad scene in an opera. And my solution to this problem is now... I'm going to reprogram sentinels to kill inhuman children the same way that her own students were massacred by sentinels. I just don't see it. And listen, maybe it's because I love her a lot because I am a noted defender of the arc in new X-Men where Magneto does things that seem a little reminiscent of the Holocaust. And people go, that's really fucked up. I'm like, the point of that scene <laughs> is to tell you that something is wrong. And it's like, if you keep reading, it turns out that Magneto's had his brain eaten by Sublime by that point. Like, he's not even steering the ship. You know what I mean? Like, that's right. supposed to tell you something's wrong. It is, to me, similarly out of character to have Emma do that. But it's there is no, like, Emma's brain was being controlled by Mpox or whatever. Like, it's just, oh, well, like, Medusa says, like, she lost her love and she lost her mind. That's like a <laughs> real line from the final issue. And it's just so misogynist and insulting that, listen, I mean, thank God they just seem to have ignored it. There was an interesting, um, Jordan White tweeted Around when, like, Hoxpox was happening, I want to say, he was like, if there's a story that's really, like, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, if there's a story that you really, really hate, where you feel like a character behaved in a way they would not behave, do you prefer for there to be a retcon addressing it on the page, or do you prefer for it to just be ignored? And he was basically polling people. And... I replied to it and I was like, usually I would just say ignore, but if it's about Emma Frost and Inhumans versus X-Men, I would not <laughs> mind a retcon. And it does seem like the winner of the poll was like, just move on and pretend it didn't happen, which is fine. I'm just glad that we've we've all kind of agreed that, that none of that happened, essentially. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind if there was a throwaway line at some point about how like, remember when M-Pox got in your brain and you were insane for six months? 
like here's the thing there are stories where i just don't love it but i'll take it Mm -hmm. and then there are stories where i'm like i have to just pretend that doesn't exist and like for me inhumans versus x-men is like the draco like i just have to not Mm-hmm. It has to not exist in my brain. Um, whereas another Emma example is I feel very weird about the origin story that was created post Morrison for the Stepford Cuckoos. Right. Where they are all where they're basically clones. like, yeah, well, like, so Morrison established throughout his run that like no one really knew where the Stepford Cuckoos had come from. Mm-hmm. And in the very final arc in here comes tomorrow, they're referred to one of his innovations was the idea that weapon X, the project that creates Wolverine is actually weapon 10. He sort of did the X 10 thing actually before Hickman did, mm-hmm. um, which at the time I was like, what, 13 and 14. It like blew my fucking mind. It was like weapon 10 <laughs> and that captain America was weapon zero, like the original project. And that then in that final arc, the stepper cuckoos are referred to as weapon 14. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, oh, what the hell does that mean? But he then he left the book. So he left it as sort of a mystery um, for people to figure out. And the, the sort of solution that was established later, which is that they are they were harv- eggs harvested from Emma right. when she was in her coma after the Hellions were killed and that they're her biological children. Um, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, it's a violation of Emma's like reproductive autonomy that I find really, because Emma is not someone who wants to have her own children. She's someone who wants to help children, but she's not someone who wants to be a mom. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it has like a very sort of oogie feeling to me, but it's supposed to, I mean, you're not supposed to feel good about it. Like it was Sublime who did it. And he's like, obviously a really bad. Right ancient bacterium i was gonna say a bad guy but he's like not even human you know you're not supposed to feel good about it but it also to me just sort of it simplifies the relationship between her and them in a way that i think is heavy-handed like they were her star pupils and they're blonde and they look like her so of course they have to be her literal children like i was kind of like eh. it's almost like the draco mm-hmm. like nightcrawler has to have a demon dad the separate cuckoos have to be emma's kids um but i will say i've like that's one where even if it's not something i'm crazy about i have come around to it and um i do like in the more recent stuff in marauders and whatnot that that they call her mom Mm -hmm. because i do think that that's funny because you know it drives her fucking crazy (laughs) like you know that she's she'll she's probably like talking to some really hot guy and like sophia esme is like (laughs) Mom, are you coming to the council meeting? And she's like, oh my God, like, did you really just like refer to me as mom in front of like whatever hot random guy is walking around? I just think that's really funny. And the idea of like, you know, as they tried to kill her back in the day, like the idea, I, I want more of their, now that Sophie and Esme are back in particular, I want more of uh, of that. And And so that's what I'm saying is like, you can... There are ways for stories I don't love to become things I can appreciate. But with with IBX, I just felt like there was no fixing that at all. It was not great. But you know what is great is when Emma dog walks any of the Avengers. Well, anytime that Emma tells Carol Danvers about herself (laughs) uh, is a truly magical mystery tour. I mean, well, first of all, 
I hate Civil War, the comic, the Mark Millar comic, but there right. is one great scene in Civil War, and it's when Tony Stark comes to ask Emma, like, so, will the X-Men help us out with this? And she's just like, um... I'm sorry, where were the Avengers when Genosha was destroyed? Like, where were you when our babies were burning, is the line, I believe. And she telepathically drags him to, like, the ruined heap of Genosha and, like, a mountain of, like, infant skeletons. And is just mm-hmm. like, so, um, no thank you, actually. <laughs> and, and then, you just posted this on Twitter recently, but then... A couple issues later, she does it. Carol comes to be like, are you sure? And she just. <laughs> well, no, she's like, and she's like a little more ruthless. She's like, and she. Well, this is right after Reverend Stryker has blown up a school bus right. at the X mansion and killed like 40 of the students. Right. And, but like she goes, or like Carol's pretending to talk to Cyclops and being like, oh, we're, we're just here to talk business. We're just here to talk about stuff. And then Emma's like, no, she's not. This cop is clearly here to get us to sign this thing. And then but before she does that, she comes prancing and she's like, oh, Carol, like, have you, she's like, have you achieved your dream of being the most famous superhero on the face of this planet yet? How many more talk shows do you have to go through? And it's like this complete drag of Carol Danvers. It's, it's like, and listen, here's the thing. I... I enjoy Carol Danvers, especially in the classic stuff. I really liked Carol when she was Rogue's alternate personality in the eighties. <laughs> and just redecorating. I love that yeah. part too. And she like redecorated Rogue's room, like she took over yeah, her body. Because, <laughs> because yeah, because Rogue had had permanently absorbed her powers and also her psyche. So like whenever Rogue got knocked out too hard, Carol would get control of the body. And I love that like and like Betsy hates Rogue but loves Carol. And so that's like fun. Well every it kind of seems like they all hate Rogue but and love but Carol. like they're like but Carol's so Carol's so nice. And that's why Carol thinks she can then now that she's like super cop of the world yeah. again come back and be like well the x-men and i have like a long you know i was binary like we have a whole <laughs> long relationship and for emma to just be like actually bitch i like read your mind when you walked in the door you are not here to offer condolences about my students that were just murdered here are their corpses by the way i'm going to telepathically drag you into some coffins would you like to make the phone call to this 14 year old's mother to tell her her daughter is dead because i assure you it's not a phone call i'm looking forward to making we've got shit to handle here right now and you're actually here to try and make us sign your stupid legislation which i don't give a shit about <laughs> and she's like and she's like you are the cop of cops like yeah you she's like you suck <laughs> like you fucking suck emma hates cops i mean i do love that marauders is now literally about emma being like so Krakoa's sovereignty depends on the fact that we can produce these miracle drugs that all of the human nations need um, but we also need to make sure we control the black market because otherwise we'll get priced out. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just love the whole, and here's the thing about Emma, like Emma will punch a Nazi. Like Emma is that kind of person. Like she is, I mean, in Marauder, Shaw just brought in Fenris to like be his, and I just can't imagine how Emma is going to just like the idea of Emma even speaking to Fenris is hilarious to me. Uh, She'll just be like, you are the most disgusting people I have ever encountered in my life. Um, But there's a, I mean, there was some controversy, I think, over one of the recent issues where like Emma, like 
rewrites a bunch of like it gets in a bunch of bigots heads and she's just like i'm erasing the entire last month from your memories also um the next time you ever have a thought that you are going to do something nasty to any person with less power than you she goes she's like gay disabled trans whatever you're gonna become violently ill and that's gonna happen to you for the rest of your life by now and people were just like oh my god that's like such an abuse of her power i'm like emma doesn't give a shit these people suck like emma doesn't care these yeah. guys are jackbooted thugs who hate people who are marginalized and she's just like well guess what you can hate them if you want but you're gonna suffer the rest of your life for it so enjoy toodles bye and that's just who she is and like carol danvers is frankly lucky that emma didn't <laughs> implant her with like a suggestion that like every time she goes on a talk show she pisses herself because she could we don't know yet we she might she might have <laughs> you never know you never know but those are my favorite is when emma gets to dog walk any of the avengers sometimes exodus whenever she just gets to just bad people <laughs> i love in house of m when like all the avengers and a couple of the x-men are meeting to discuss like what to do with the scarlet witch who has gone crazy because again that's like all they can do with these powerful women characters a lot of the time mm-hmm and she's like, we need to kill her. <laughs> yeah, Emma's like, what is what discussion is there to be had? Put her down. And Catherine is like, what, like a dog? And Emma's like, yes. Like she's <laughs> rabid and she's going to destroy us all. And Wolverine's like, because Wolverine's an Avenger at that time. And he's like, got to be honest, I'm with Emma on this one. And everybody's like, what the fuck? And Emma's just like, I'm sorry, have you all lost your mind? She's an omnipotent god who's gone completely insane. And she's going to destroy us all. And guess what? Emma is completely correct because they don't kill her and then the decimation happens and the entire mutant race is fucked for like 15 years. Right. And so like, but that her frankness in that scene, everyone's like, it's oh. so good. Everyone's <laughs> like, but Emma, they're like, Wanda's our friend. She's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Sometimes you got to kill your friends. Like, <laughs> You guys got to get this together. She's like, did we learn nothing from the Phoenix? Did we learn yeah. nothing? It's like, yeah. She, I mean, she she doesn't say it, but she's like, I created Dark Phoenix. I know how this goes. <laughs> it was an accident, but like, <laughs> like I did that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Emma's just like, so your first time with like a world destroying entity? Because it's not mine. And the answer is you put her down like a fucking dog before she can eat the broccoli people of Tabari. Um... <laughs> You know, it's just a good, that's just a good fucking moment. And I just do think, I, I also like, the Utopia era wasn't my favorite, just because the decimation made me really angry, because I thought the mutant minority metaphor got really lost when there were only like 200 of them, because that's not a robust minority group, right? Mm-hmm. But I do like when like the dark X-Men happen and like the cabal and all of that, and like Norman Osborn is like, Emma Frost, you've always wanted to like be free of Xavier's influence. You'll be my mutant point of contact. And the whole time she's just like completely playing him. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think Xavier is a wet blanket, but also like, you think I'm going to listen to an evil man and tell me what to do? You're completely, completely lost your mind. And she's a double agent the whole time. I love that. Um, and after Inhumans versus X-Men, Whenever they did, like, in Secret Empire, which I also just, like, did not read. But I did read the part where, like, Emma is, like, the secret leader of the mutant country and is just, like, I'm sorry, who did, when they're, like, we're going to negotiate. She's, like, we're not going to negotiate. I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do here. Or I'm going to tell my friend here. And, like, she points at Zorn. 
like to you know make his star head kill you all where you stand like who do you think you're fucking with you're not talking to charles xavier right now that's not how i play this game i do i do love zorn being like the unstable star head (laughs) i mean i will forever be upset about the zorn retcon because i think that the reveal at the end of new x-men is so brilliant but i do understand why they did it Mm. yeah if you're gonna retcon it and and i do like that they kind of explained away with oh that's part of whatever the scarlet witch was doing because like her (laughs) power was to alter reality so it's like oh yeah it's like she just fucked with that so don't worry too much about it um if you're gonna retcon out that reveal then yes zorn being like a weird guy with a star in his head is always fun <laughs> i love that it just comes back and it was just like oh man we need Starhead. <laughs> yeah oh yeah well, like sometimes you need sometimes you need a Starhead man to do Starhead things so wait am i allowed to ask you about avengers versus x-men did you that is hmm. so <laughs> Also, why are the X-Men, why do they keep fighting the X-Men? Like, Well, here's the problem. Let's be honest. Disney didn't have the rights to merchandise the X-Men. So they basically like to use wrestling parlance. Uh, you know, I feel like the WWF slash E in the 90s is like one of the few things gay boys and straight boys could talk about on mm-hmm. the on the recess field that in the X-Men, frankly. Right. Um, but uh, like basically they tried to put the Avengers over because they were building the Avengers cinematic universe. And then they tried to put the inhumans over because they were trying to use the inhumans as like a replacement for the X-Men because they couldn't make real money off the X-Men. And the X-Men had previously been the most profitable and most popular superhero group in the world to the point where the reason they didn't have those merchandising rights or movie rights, to my understanding, is because when Marvel was fucking bankrupt in 1996, they sold those rights to, like, save the company because the X-Men were that valuable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Avengers versus X-Men I find less offensive than Inhumans versus X-Men mm-hmm. because Inhumans versus X-Men is... The concept of replacing the X-Men with the Inhumans is just inherently offensive and they're like i think medusa and crystal are great fun i love kamala khan although that you'll notice they don't talk about her being an inhuman anymore that's something they're just gonna <laughs> let us all forget um but the problem is that the inhumans whole deal is eugenics like that's where their powers come from it's like it's eugenics like, and monarchy yeah it's like they're they're the like X-Men. they're like inbred eugenics royalty and it was an interesting jack kirby loved doing stuff like that like the new gods and the eternals are are similar they're sort of those three things are sort of the same right concept a little bit but there's something really fucked up about taking the x-men who have always you know in the 60s not as much but certainly once claremont took over the book have always been used allegorically to stand in for racial minorities, religious minorities, sexual minorities, and like the downtrodden marginalized people and be like, Hmm, these characters don't make us merchandising money anymore. So we're replacing them with like eugenicist monarchists is like a bizarre thing. So just IVX was not my thing. Avengers versus (laughs) X-Men. I feel very great gowns, beautiful gowns about it because (laughs) 
I think that the Phoenix Five designs, particularly Emma's and Magic's, are stunning. Oh, um, I know. Those are, and I love, I loved Emma and Scott in New X-Men, like under Morrison. I loved Emma and Scott. And I do feel like over the years that followed, Scott kind of dragged her down a little bit as a character. Like she kind of got relegated to being Scott's girlfriend a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a problem with breaking them up, but I thought that the way they did it in Avengers versus X-Men was cheesy. And that said, I love Emma and Namor and I want more of that. Like I love (laughs) the idea of just like Emma and Namor. They don't have to date, but the idea of them just like fucking whenever they feel like it is extremely funny to me. (laughs) And I, I applaud that. They're both equally very bitchy people. Yeah. They're total bitches and they have a very similar attitude and like he's hot and kind of dumb. And if she wants to like, kick it with Namor sometimes. I love that for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the scene where like dark Phoenix Scott steals her piece of the Phoenix force. And she's like, all I ever did was love you. And this is what you do to me. And I mean, I don't know. Speaking as a, as a Madeline Pryor Stan, <laughs> I like when women Scott Summers has treated badly. Tell him he's a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> So, you know, that that was made to appeal to me. But I don't know. I I will say my biggest problem with it was I don't like when they give the Phoenix Force to characters who aren't telepaths. It doesn't feel correct to me. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like an X-Men story written by Avengers people. Like, it didn't really feel of a piece with the X-Men sort of lore to me. And it set up the Bendis era, which I, listen, I like Brian Michael Bendis. I am a big fan of Powers, his creator-owned book. I think he's an immensely talented writer. I just, I had zero interest in the time-traveling teen 60s X-Men. I did like how he wrote Teen Jean, because he wrote her exactly how we were talking about earlier, where it's like Jean thinks she knows best and is kind of a smug, self-righteous bitch. And I think that's really good. But I just didn't care that much. Now I'm thinking that both Emma and Jean have both kind of like obliquely outed Bobby. Yes. Because in in Uncanny 318, when after Emma was in Bobby's body and he comes to her and is like, you did things with my powers that I will that I have never been able to do. Please, like, tell me how you were able to do that. And she's just like, we both know why you're not meeting your potential. (laughs) And he just was like, "Okay, but teach me how to do it. She's like. <laughs> she's like i cannot teach you how she's to like do that what do you want me to say and the reveal honestly like one of the most brilliant and obvious backstory things to reveal about a character is that like the only relative that emma loved and cared about the only person in her family was her older brother who was gay and who was like sent to conversion therapy by their parents and mm-hmm. like was horribly mistreated and so it establishes this whole other context when you look back at that, that story with her and Iceman in the early nineties, because she's just like, honey, you're gay. (laughs) Like just, if you'll just, she taunts him with like a a vision of Opal Tanaka, his like horrible girlfriend from the nineties. He cannot stop talking. Like every panel is just like, 
is like me and Opal. It's like, you don't even like her. Like, and she's kind of dreadful, but like, but it's just such a, it's such a beard that it's like naughty, you know? And, and she's just like, come on, dude, like just be yourself. But the difference between Emma and Jean mm-hmm. is that Emma's like, we both know what I'm talking about and you need to deal with it. Whereas Jean, and of course it's teen Jean, so she has like less impulse control, but I feel like adult Jean would do this. Is just like, well, but Bobby, are you going to tell everyone you're gay or what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emma's much more about like letting people figure out their deal and Jean wants to just kind of tell you your deal. And I do think that's one of the the differences between them. Yeah, definitely. Because it took Emma a long time to figure out her own deal. And so she wants people to kind of reach that wholeness themselves. Um, Speaking of Christian, her brother, I love that he has become a real character. I love the design they gave him in Marauders that is, and I just know this because I'm gay, is based on a red carpet photo of an outfit Colton Haynes wore once, which I think is so funny. (laughs) I did not know this. Using a reference photo of like Colton Haynes on the red carpet in like a cool outfit with a sash. That's just like very flamboyant as the costume for Emma Frost's gay brother is extremely funny to me. But the one problem I have, and I love the art in Marauders, but the one problem I have is I feel like they keep drawing him like he's younger than her mm-hmm. like he like russell daughterman on the on a cover draws him as like a total daddy and it's like christian frost should absolutely be like 40 years old there's no re- like he's considerably older than emma i'm googling him up now of like what he's supposed to look like okay like he's supposed to be like i would be much more into that character if he was like a zaddy kind of character. Like if he was more like Jason Statham, then. <laughs> yeah, then like, oh, he doesn't even have to be that extent, but like, I feel like he should be like a Nikolai Coster Waldo type. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, as opposed to they're drawing him as like, he looks like he's about 25 years old. Yeah. Um, And I think that I like that they're having him and Bobby hook up because that feels like a real full circle moment for Emma's like Bobby honey, like yeah. moment from the early nineties. <laughs> I do love that after they have that conversation and after she like does eventually teach him how to use his powers by just like being mean to him until he figures it out. Um, that then he takes her as his date to like the Xavier formal or whatever. And it's just very clear that it's like, she's his hag now and they've like reached, <laughs> reached an understanding. So I love the idea that now that Christian has like recovered from all of his like conversion therapy trauma and recovered from his like substance abuse years and all of that, that now he's like a mutant doing his thing on Krakoa and dating Bobby. I think that's hysterical, but I do think he should be a little older than Bobby. And I think that that would be interesting because Christian's been out for a long time. And I do, I I love all the gay jokes with Bobby that they're doing in Marauders, but Mm -hmm. I do, I feel like Bobby was finally confirmed to be gay and then just sort of went fully like self-assured gay guy in terms of how he's written a lot of the time. And I feel like if you're in the closet until you're like 32 or 33 or whatever, there's actually a lot going on there that should probably be explored more. And I think it would be interesting to have someone like, I mean, 
it's a shame they married off Jean Paul because that would have been perfect. I don't know. I I generally don't like that they that they keep insisting on marrying off gay characters in Marvel and at DC. I understand that showing support for gay marriage was a cool thing to do, and I applaud that. But superheroes typically only get married when they're like retiring. Mm-hmm. Like Brian and Megan get married because Excalibur was canceled. Scott and Madeline got married because Claremont was having Cyclops retire. Uh, like Mary Jane and Spider-Man are really the only ones where it, and, and Reed and Sue, I guess, are the only ones where it really isn't sort of the end of the character. Because so much of, of what characters in superhero books get up to is sort of soap opera romantic stuff. So I feel like if you marry off the gay characters, it kind of desexualizes them and gives them less options on that front. So I kind of wish North Star was single because I feel like it would be fun to have him be sort of this devil may care gay playboy on Krakoa. Um, well, that I mean, it makes sense too that like what you're saying about like, yeah, like it's like if someone being gay and uh, just out of the closet dating someone who's been out of the closet for his whole right. life. Yeah, and so I think that because it can't be North Star, which people obviously would like, because that was the one of the only things about the Chuck Austin run on Uncanny that people liked, was mm-hmm. the Bobby and, and Jean-Paul stuff. Since it can't be Jean-Paul at the moment, because Jean-Paul is presently married, uh, I think that Christian is a good substitute, but I think that they should emphasize that he is older, that he has been out since he was young. I mean, the Russell Dodderman cover, where it's just the two of them, and Christian's like standing in a bathrobe with like vague facial hair. I'm like, this is perfect. This is exactly like, it should be like, he should be Bobby's sugar daddy a little bit. Who's like helping him find himself. I think that would be more, I I just would like that more than, and I think that that is sort of how it's written. It's just that the way he's drawn right now, he looks a little young for me, but Mm -hmm. we're getting off track. I just, I don't know. Obviously, two gays talking Emma Frost are going to talk about Emma Frost's gay brother. It is just sort of a thing. Who doesn't want to be Emma Frost's gay brother? I mean, I wouldn't want to go through the stuff he went through in their backstory, but in terms of, (laughs) in terms of like other, like just in general, yes, that is. Like, could you imagine if like Emma Frost was your sister without all like the weird stuff, but like, no, but just, like, you call your sister up and your sister is Emma Frost, like, and you need <laughs> advice, and you're just like, Emma, I'm dating this guy, and he's such an... And she's just like, darling, you know, <laughs> men are to be used and disposed of, you know, like, just very... It would be so fun. And she would dress you, like, she would make... She would custom order clothes for you and be like, put this on, you're gonna look amazing in it. And she's just like... And then she just texts you, just like, ugh. We didn't put down the Scarlet Witch, and look what happened. <laughs> yeah, she just texted you, she's just like, of course, I, yet again, I told them they needed to kill someone, and they didn't do it, and now, like, the world is ending again. I wish they would just let me kill people when I say that we should. And you text her back, like, LOL, oh my god, and, like, the little emoji with, like, the hand up by your head, and, the, and then, like, a dancing lady emoji, and she's just like, pretty much, that would be me if they would let me kill that bitch. She would emphasize. Yes, exactly. It was like, Emma Emma Frost loved that. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's a good moment to segue into my game, which I force everyone to play. Now, the one thing with Emma, unfortunately, is like, I will give Whedon one thing, that line about being like her own best friend because she's a diamond is a Real Housewives tagline. Mm-hmm. But other than that, 
if Emma Frost were a cast member on The Real Housewives of Krakoa, what would be her tagline? Can you go first? <laughs> I'm nervous. I usually just make the guests do it, but oh, now okay. I'm putting me on the spot. I'll think too. I'm so bad at delivering these. I always end up laughing at my own jokes, which is bad, but... Do it. Hers would probably be like, they say hard work never killed anyone, but I'm not about to find out. There you go. That's good. I like that. Twirl. I think I might... Twirl, <laughs> yes. And like sparkle in, into a literal diamond. I think I would go with Penny for your thoughts. I'll take them for free. Or... <laughs> I think she'd sort of go full Sonia Morgan and just like be very self-referential. Mm-hmm. Like she un- she knows the gays are listening. Right. If she's a cast member on that show, and so she'll like lead. She makes some like she'd make probably the same joke about Homo Superior that I do at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah, probably. She'd be like Homo Superior. That's my glam squad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. She would. Or, or she'd reference something about tops and bottoms that make, in season two, yeah. she would yeah. say something about tops and bottoms and we would all squeal when we heard yeah, it. Yeah, the same way that Sonia did. Or like something about like, what can I say? The queens love me. Or like something like that. You know, like just, she just would, she'd have a new one each season that was just about how like she understands that like the fags go wild for Emma Frost. Because we do. Yeah. I'm allowed to say that on my own podcast. It's a, that's, I'm reclaiming it. Why do you think, why do you think that is though? Cause I feel like I, I, I don't know enough straight people to ask them about Emma. I Foss. know, right? It's hard. Um, I, I think that, I think that Emma has a lot of the traits that female gay icons sort of have, which is that she's faced a ton of adversity and she came out the other side of it really defiant and unwilling to let men boss her around and looking absolutely stunning at all times. That, but her backstory is really tragic. I mean, it is kind of gay men have all, I mean, Judy Garland is the most famous example, obviously, but like gay men have always sort of felt connected to these women who have suffered publicly, which is, you know, not always sometimes that gay gaze is a little exploitative. So I'm not saying it's, you know, without its problematics, but mm-hmm. I do think that she is a diva in sort of the sense this woman built herself from nothing and she looks absolutely flawless and she's fucking smart and funny and she doesn't care what anyone thinks about her. Um, and I think that when you're a gay man, that's something you kind of aspire to, because I think we really care what people think of us a lot of the time, because we grew up feeling very self-conscious about our gender presentation, about, you know, the way that our peers viewed us, uh, about whether we were presenting the right image to the world. I think the fact that Emma is so conscious of her image and so smart about the way she presents herself Mm-hmm. is also something that gay men connect with. But mostly I just think she's like a fucking funny, mean bitch who like looks <laughs> incredible. And, you know, what's not to love and about I, that? I always think that there's like a power fantasy that she presents that like yes. we never really get to indulge in ourselves or we don't really get to see that much of. And so it's just like, oh, this, this is like... The way that every man is like her plaything. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, why I never feel it, except for, I will say, the art, 
that Emma Frost um, ongoing that like sort of delved into her backstory was very strange the one in 2003. And the strangest thing about it was that it was almost a romance book and it was part of like a Marvel initiative to try and get more female readers, but they put the most appalling cheesecakey covers on it of adult Emma in her new X-Men costume, but like drawn in the most obscene ways. So that's the one exception because those covers I did think were gross. Um, But for the most part, I do part of why I think I feel like I never look at a drawing of Emma Frost the way that I would look at a drawing of some other female comic book characters and be like, this is, you know, gross, is that it always feels like Emma's in on the joke mm-hmm. as a character. Like, Emma's always just like, yes, like, I like look at it. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. You know, mm-hmm. like that kind of a vibe. It's a very look, don't touch. She's not accessible. She's not actually a sex object because she isn't going to fuck you. Right. Yeah. I could, like, it's very, like, it's more than agency. It's just kind of like a fuck you to you when you look at yeah, her. Yeah. <laughs> she's just like, she's like, yes, like, you do have a boner right now. And I think that's hilarious. And you can go <laughs> handle that yourself. But you know what I do think what I love and like what Donna, like, what as we, where she is right now and where she goes in the future is that like we're in like house of X and in the X-Men it's like, she gets to be like a political player in a way that like, I don't know. There's something in it that is really like, I love the way it hits and I love the way that she's. I do too. Cause she is a politician, you know, like she has that, that acumen and that brain and she's such, she is a chess player, you know, like the white queen thing she is always two steps ahead of her rivals on the board. The only time she's ever really gotten tripped up, it's like because someone like Shaw or Celine, who are also Hellfire Club chess masters, are, mm-hmm. you know, making their own moves and she can't possibly win every game. But she's just very good at that. And it's nice to see the other characters recognize that and value that in her and to see Xavier and Magneto approach her about Krakoa and be like, we need like a PR person. Right. You know, like we're not as good at that. Like Magneto is like, I'm super not good at that actually. (laughs) Like recall the brotherhood of evil mutants. Like, you know, that didn't go so well. And she's the one who can get the support that they need because she understands how to talk to people and she understands how people tick in a way that Xavier never really has because he's such a, he's really in his own head a lot of the time. And just by nature of how she survived, Emma has had to always be reading other people and reading powerful people and understanding how to manipulate them. I mean, the most incredible thing, honestly, because that really is an element of the character that Morrison created, because mm-hmm. because she is sort of the one who pulls them all PR wise kind of out of the fire when Cassandra Nova, you know, reveals the secret of the school. The wildest thing about Morrison making her his signature character and like completely reinventing her and making her one of the most essential X-Men characters for the rest of history to date is he didn't even plan to use her initially. Mm -hmm. He wanted to use storm and he was told storm was unavailable. (laughs) 
Could you imagine? <laughs> I know because Claremont was using was like the deal basically when they took Claremont off the main book, which they gave him Extreme X Men and they let him take his favorite characters to Extreme X Men. So it was like Storm, Psylocke, Rogue, Kitty. It was like everybody who were his favorite people to write. So. You know, Morrison's like, when he's requesting his team for the main flagship title, he's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I want Scott and Gene and Wolverine, obviously. And then I want Hank to be like the smart guy. And then I want Storm because she's Storm. And also only one woman on the team would be weird. And I want Colossus because I need someone who can like punch through stuff and be the strong one. And they were like, well, Storm's unavailable and Colossus is dead. and so he was like well shit and then he remembered that a fan because gen x had been canceled around that time and a fan had asked him like do you have any plans for emma frost and he hadn't really followed gen x so he wasn't really up on her having like become a good guy or any of that and he was like well that could be interesting and so he asked them like well what if i bring in emma frost and they're like well we have no plans for her the idea that it could have been Storm. I mean, imagine how different that book would have been. And then he gave her the diamond form mm-hmm. purely because he couldn't have Colossus. Right. Like, imagine the entire world of X-Men without that happening. Yeah, it's almost impossible to imagine because, like, Emma, with that secondary mutation, has become one of, I would say, the ten most notable X-Men characters. And the idea that it's a total accident of fate, that he wasn't allowed to use Storm, and he wasn't allowed to use Colossus, so he was like, I don't know, maybe I'll try something with Emma Frost, and then I'll give her a Colossus-type power in case someone needs to punch through walls, is just... I mean, it shows what sort of what a mad genius he is, that he could do that, mm-hmm. that at all. And I'm grateful that he did, because I love her. I mean, and again, as a villain, I thought she was cool, And in Gen X, I thought she was, like, cool. I wasn't super into Gen X, but um, Banshee has never been hotter than he was in Gen X. And I have a thing for a ginge, so... A ginge Irish. Well, you know, I am Irish. (laughs) But that's not really what... It's just, I I just, I do like redheads. I don't know what... I like when they fight in Gen X. I love the the sort of sexual tension between them, where it's like they can't stand each other, but also they clearly really want to fuck. I thought that was fun. The other thing I really, really appreciate with Emma is that they have never done the hot for teacher thing with her. Mm -hmm. Like... Obviously, her male students might have crushes on her, but they have never had her express any kind of inappropriate interest in a student. And that would be so easy and lazy to do. But like IVX, I think it would be such a betrayal of the character that I'm just really relieved they never did that. Here's the thing about her. She's a good teacher. She's good at it. And she takes it really seriously. I mean, I love, I love in one of the more recent, or it's not that recent, but I guess at some point in Marauders, Kate Pride, which she will always be Kitty to me, but I do like the nod to Days of Future Past that eventually Kitty starts going like, please call me Kate. I'm like a grown woman. (laughs) Kitty basically says to her, you know, I do sometimes think, what if I had taken your offer and gone with you instead of Xavier? Who would I be? and, And how would my life have gone? 
and I do think about it sometimes. And Emma's like, I was barely a woman myself back then, and I would have destroyed you. <laughs> so it all worked out with all the drugs. Fine. <laughs> yeah, like, well, because if Kitty was a hellion, I've got news for you. It didn't end well for those kids. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think their relationship has blossomed into something really interesting and, and powerful and good. And I thought that the way Whedon wrote it was a little um heavy-handed but i i guess i do appreciate him planting the seeds there a little bit because i do think that the way they're writing it in marauders now is perfect oh yeah and like the whole the way that emma and like grief and like the way she like mourns kitty and that oh uh, when she get when the funeral happens and she's like First of all, she wears black, which is how you know it's real. <laughs> Serious. And then, she, but she still has her, like, little white corset on under her black blazer, because, like, she's got a Vienna. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, she, like, sort of very stiffly kind of walks away from the funeral and then slams her door behind her and then just starts fucking sobbing. Like, that is really good. Yeah, so good. And the fact that it's Emma who figures out how to bring Kitty back. Yeah, and Emma being like, hey, Storm, I can go into my diamond form if you want to throw me around. Like. that's i love that i love that when um yes when when storm is when storm like slaps her across the face and she's just like do you feel better now i can go diamond if you want to like knock me around a little bit and then they hug it out i think that's really fun and i also it was a fun surprise like callisto popping up in that book i really mm-hmm. love i love the idea of emma being like so when I was evil, I definitely didn't do anything for the Morlocks because I thought I was better than you. But guess what? I'm not. And uh, <laughs> I think you're great. So why don't we do something? And I'm also just thrilled to have Callisto and Storm in a book together because that's like a real OTP for me. Mm-hmm. When they have their, when they like first see each other in that book and like Storm throws a knife at Callisto's face and then they're like, <laughs> and he, she's like Morlock and Callisto's like goddess. And then they hug each other. I was just like, yes i love this because that's one of the gayest relationships in the claremont run like obviously storm and yukio is like happening on page but storm and callisto when storm has lost her powers and callisto is like like they literally have like a fist fight in the middle of the mutant massacre and they like get soaking wet and like there's lightning striking in the background and callisto's like you're still doing this you're still doing it look like you are a goddess, you still are this person. And I'm just like kiss, kiss. It's like <laughs> yeah. you know that if Claremont could have done it, they would have. But maybe they will now. Who knows? It's a different time on Krakoa. Everyone's doing stuff on Krakoa. I love the like deep Claremont bisexual vibe of Krakoa. I liked when you did your breakdown on Twitter of which superheroes are and are not cops, and you were like Cyclops was a cop, but Krakoa Cyclops is not a cop and is bisexual. <laughs> And I was just like, you know what? Accurate. And uh, I love that for him. It, it, once you go through the gold ball, you're just, yeah. you, you're, all your hangups go away. And it does feel like the 80s books again, because in the 80s books, it did feel like everyone was bisexual and literally anything could happen, except it was always only subtext because nothing ever did happen. But mm-hmm. um, what I'm waiting for is for them to let Rachel Summers and Ileana Rasputin just be lesbians. Because like those characters are lesbians. I thought it was going to be Ileana and Kitty. I don't. Well, see, Ileana and Kitty has like that was always very charged in the eighties, mm-hmm. and especially when Kitty was dating Ileana's brother, and it was like this whole like Eve Kasowski Sedgwick kind of thing going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but 
Kitty and Rachel also was always very charged. Like when Rachel gets like has to leave and go into the time stream to become Mother Ascani, like in the later <laughs> run of Excalibur, and she like embraces Kitty and she's like, "When I'm born to Scott and Jean, promise me that you'll kiss me hello." <laughs> you're like, and you're just like, "What?" <laughs> um, but no, like I just I. Ileana and Rachel are fucking gay and I just want them to let them just be fucking gay because we don't have enough lesbian characters, honestly, in the X-Men. I think that we finally are getting some gay male characters, which is neat. But outside of like, you know, Mystique and Destiny are bisexual and are finally allowed to like, we're finally allowed to say they're a couple, thank God. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, and then like Bling, I guess, exists, uh, but is not... It's just one of the many students they introduced who never really became popular. And then Karma, obviously, is great. But, like, Karma being a lesbian was, like, a a joke that they did in the 90s. It was like, we haven't seen Karma in a while, and now she, like, shaved her head and dates girls. Who knew? You know, like, (laughs) and they've since made her a more, like, you know, a real character again. Um, But I feel like Karma's it. Yeah, well, it's, like, in a lot of them were... It's always like the newer kids. A lot of those like teens they brought in and were just. I just feel like like Bobby, they really ought to let one of the classic X-Men women just be like, I'm gay. And I feel like, because again, like Karma is a classic character, but she was one of the new mutants. And frankly, she was like the least significant new mutant because she left the team pretty quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. And I like her a lot. I'm not by any means like a karma hater. I think karma is fantastic. But I, uh, I just think that, I mean, with Rachel, it's so in that original stuff from the 80s, she's just so gay that like no disrespect to Franklin Richards in that one timeline where they're married. <laughs> but like, I don't see it. <laughs> so what so what you're saying is Emma Frost needs to take over Rachel's body. Yes, and then be like, Rachel, we have something we need to talk about. But if they don't want to do it with Rachel, I think Ileana would also be a great option because everybody loves Ileana. And like, Ileana has never, literally never, as far as I know, expressed any interest in a man. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I always assumed, like, I never even thought of her as being straight. No, I was like a child reading, and I loved her when I was a kid, but I was reading, I was just like, magic is gay. Yeah, (laughs) magic is definitely gay. I was like, magic is definitely a lesbian. And I love that. I, you know, it was very exciting to me, much like Storm and Callisto's like fist fighting was exciting. And much like, you know, that weird arc with Bobby and Emma in the early 90s was exciting because I picked up with my very heterosexual father. I was talking to him about that recently. And he was like, yeah, I remember reading that when it came out. And I was like, oh, she's saying he's gay. <laughs> so like, you know, my dad got it. It wasn't it wasn't subtle. Uh, it just took them, you know, almost 30 more years to to actually pull the trigger on it. But I would love to see that happen for Rachel or Ileana or both of them, frankly. And I would love an on panel like Storm is by moment mm-hmm. because Honestly, the only man I've ever bought Storm's attraction to is Forge in the 80s. Every other time it's like, ah, here's my heart's desire, Yukio. <laughs> like, you know. And then like her thing with Callisto was so, so charged. I like her with Gambit a little. I like her with Wolverine a little. I mean, Gambit and Rogue are very, they're one who they've gotten married and it actually works. But that's because that's like an official couple you can't 
do anything to at this point. Like mm-hmm. they're, they've become a set. Um, but I, I do get the like low row, like Wolverine and storm mm-hmm. appeal. It's just, I like them just, I just like them better as friends. And I just feel like she's more into chicks. That was my other issue with her marrying black Panther. I was just kind of like, why though? Like she, <laughs> she'd much rather like wear black leather and hang out with like this Joan Jet looking lady with an eye patch. That's sort of like her thing. Well, when that um, in that issue where Emma takes, is it? I think it's that one where um, that that arc where Emma takes over Bobby's uh body. Uh, she's going to New York. Storm is going to New York to meet a friend, and she like goes to basically their version of Limelight, and it's Yukio. Yes, and it's Yukio. <laughs> yes, and also Storm first debuts her like mohawk look after she and Yukio like go out on the town in Tokyo for a week. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like oh, I went to a bunch of gay bars with Yukio, <laughs> and now I'm doing a Grace Jones look, and I got a mohawk. Like it's a very it's a very she's like she's like bishop i have a date like what is going yeah. on <laughs> what is going on i have to meet my friend yukio at a bar um i also really liked in in marauders when um one of the letters and like the interstitials they say that the marauders stopped off in tokyo and mostly hung out in gay bars right. and it's just like you know that's because Storm knows all the gay bars in Tokyo because she went there with Yukio for, like, the whole 80s. That was, like, her whole... That was her scene. That was the, um... That they were talking about, like, trying... Like, it was, like, recon, right? Like, someone was making... Yeah, recon and it was, like... The exactly, they're spying on them, and they're, like, they went to a lot of bar, Like, they went to a lot of, you know, whatever, this thing, the other thing, and a lot of gay bars, <laughs> dance clubs. And it's, like, you're... And, the, you know, you're thinking it's, like, Kitty and Bobby, like, having a fun time. But when you take a minute to think about it, you're, like, wait, Storm knows the gay scene in Tokyo real well <laughs> <laughs> from the Claremont days. Um, but yeah, no, love that. We'll save all of this for a storm episode, which I do have planned with a really great guest. So we have now been talking for over two hours. Well, you know what? Emma deserves that. Emma deserves it. And, uh, that's just something people are going to have to deal with. I love this character. She meant a lot to me when I was in high school, when new X-Men was coming out. Uh, I really identified with her and I'm really, really happy that after the, weirdness misstep that was that ivx period that she's back where she's supposed to be and you know better than ever and i uh, i really can't wait to see what's next for her so thank you for any time someone who shares my passion and coming on to talk about our favorite diamond telepath i always think of when did that song um the song Short Skirt, Long Jacket come out. I feel like it was around the exact same time that New X-Men was... Yeah, it was 2001. It was literally when New X-Men came out and that song was everywhere. Like, you could not escape it. And it had, it's like, I want a girl with a mind like a diamond. And like, I want a girl with a short skirt and a long jacket. And at the time, Emma's wearing like a thong and a trench coat and turning into a diamond. And like... <laughs> You're like, this is it. I was so, you know, the song was ubi- was literally, like, everywhere. It was ubiquitous. You could not escape it. But every time I heard it, I thought about Emma Frost. So I was like, this is the best viral song ever. We didn't call them viral back then, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Wait, can we ask, can I ask you one last question before we go? Yeah. Who plays Emma Frost in the movie? I have my actress. Oh, in, like, a new movie? Yeah. So, 
Naomi Watts was always my pick, but I think she's now, unfortunately, a little bit aged out. Mm-hmm. I would love to see Charlize do it. I think she would kill it. Um, but if I'm really going to dig deep, I think, and I may say her name wrong, but I think Ramala Garai would absolutely kill it. I need to look look her up. She was on, like, The Hour, that BBC show. Oh. She's really good. And she just has, like, she's so pretty, but she has kind of a, um, kind of like a sneaky looking face. I just think, <laughs> like, she would, I think she would be really good. Mine is, uh, can I tell you mine? Yeah, tell me yours. I have yours. two. I have one, Debicki, Elizabeth Debicki. Well, duh. Yeah, no. <laughs> if, the problem is that they already used her in Guardians right. of the Galaxy. But if, they ha- if they're willing to Gemma Chan it, Debicki is, like, top of my list, for sure. Although she's a little young. Yeah. Or... Um, Rosamund Pike. I was blanking for a second. She's on my list too. I think she would be so good. She um, played a Bond girl named Miranda Frost in <laughs> Die Another Day, who very clearly, to me at least, was like slightly Emma Frost inspired. And how old is she? Yeah, that's about right. I just feel I feel like Emma should be about forty. Like I just whoever they cast to play her. Mm-hmm. And that's my one thing with Debicki is that she's like 30 years old. And I just feel like that might not jive. Just, I, I don't know. I want Emma to have sort of a more mature quality where it's like, she's just sort of seen it all. And is a little bit tired of, of all these people's bullshit. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would say um, Charlize, Rosamund Pike, Ramala Garai are all people I would really like to see at least do a screen test. Um, you know, honestly, I I thought it was, I mean, the writing was not good for her, but I didn't think January Jones was terrible casting. I think they just wrote her so stiff and didn't give her anything to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you watch January Jones's Instagram stories, you can tell that she's a lot of fun. Right. And like, if you gave her an actual opportunity to play Emma Frost in like a fun, snarky, like wacky, crazy way, that she'd actually be quite good, I think. So um, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to giving her another shot at it, but I don't think they would do that. Yeah. I, I do love January Jones' Instagram stories. And... Yeah, she's not my ideal Emma, although visually she's quite good. But um, I, I just do think she has shown us in the time since first class that she can be dynamic in that way. And Mm -hmm. that the character was just written as like a total nothing. And it just wasn't really her. I mean, it's like Zoe Kravitz is in that movie and Zoe Kravitz is one of the most exciting young actresses of her generation, in my opinion. And like Angel Salvador is one of the most dynamic characters in new X-Men and they cast Zoe Kravitz as Angel Salvador. And she is, nothing in that movie so that movie just kind of has that problem generally i think and it's also it also has rose byrne yeah as moira mctaggart and it's just like a not funny rose you know honestly rose byrne would be good as emma frost emma's not a natural blonde if you if rose (laughs) went blonde to do emma that would actually because she's very funny and then there's the someone i was talking to a huge buffy fan was just like obviously cordelia was an emma frost was like Charisma Carpenter was the prototype of Emma Frost. Listen, I live and die for Charisma Carpenter. I <laughs> have had an opportunity to speak with her personally. She is one of the sweetest like celebrities I have ever met. Um, and I support her having literally any role 
in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> um, but I do think that she's probably a little older than they probably want to go uh, for that character, just based on how they've cast other characters in the MCU, which is bullshit. I mean, like, they cast Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, and it did turn out funny, like, hot Aunt May, but it was like, come on, guys. You know, <laughs> the, the fact that they cast a 26-year-old as Carol Danvers still bothers me. In terms of Buffy and Angel, my fan casting for Carol Danvers actually was Elizabeth Rome, who played Kate Lockley on Angel. Mm. She's, like, in her 40s, has the look, is, I think, a very underrated actress. Um, that, you know, people make fun of that one scene from Law & Order where she's like, is it because I'm a lesbian? But, like, that's just, <laughs> that's just an awkward scene. She's actually, like, pretty good. Um and uh, I said that once on Twitter and she retweeted it. And I was just like, yes, Elizabeth Rome, like be careful. And then they cast a 26 year old and like no disrespect to Brie Larson, who I think is a very good actress, but there is no good reason for Carol Danvers to be like 20 years younger than Tony Stark. It's just not correct. No, absolutely not. And I think Charlize, if they were going to bring in Charlize, that would have been a good moment to do that. And I'm, I'm sure Charlize wants to do a Marvel movie. I mean, she's, She's fucking game for yeah, action. She is. She was in Old Guard, and that was basically yeah. an X-Men movie. She's on my Emma list just because I think she would be so good at making the faces of just, like, like, Jean, like Jean is talking, and, like, it just cuts <laughs> to Emma, just, like, stone face, just, like... Are you fucking kidding me right now? Well, it's a lot of the uh, a lot of the faces she makes in Young Adult would be the yes, which is one of my favorite movies. So I'm I'm a big Charlize head. Um, as you should be. Rosamund Pike would also be excellent. That's a really good suggestion. She uh, she has that sharp as a diamond. All she would need to do would be like be be like, have you seen Gone Girl? Like done. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that's like... or just like the five second like the five second when she's like just tearing into Ben Affleck at the end. It's yeah. Just... It's like throw her into a room with whoever's playing Scott and just have them read those lines. <laughs> now that's all I'm going to see when I, <laughs> if Gone Girl was really a movie about Emma and Scott. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it could be toward the end of the utopia period. Mm -hmm. I could totally see Emma Gone Girling Scott a little <laughs> bit. Um, <laughs> anyway, just so that we don't make people listen for like a third hour, I would love to, again, thank you for being my guest and uh, ask you to do some plugs. Where can people follow you online? Where would you, what would you like them to, to look at of your work? If anything, just go for it. Um, yeah, you can find me at Vox. Uh, if you can navigate the hellscape that is Twitter, find me on Twitter. Um, I don't have an OnlyFans, so I can't plug that, or a SoundCloud. Tell them your Twitter username, darling. Oh, right. I'm really bad at this. See? Uh, it is Alex underscore A, B as in boy, A, D as in dog, and then S as in Santos. And that is my... Alex Abads with an underscore in the middle. That is me. You should follow me. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. 
I have set up a Gmail account at Cerebrocast at gmail.com where you can send comments, questions, concerns. I'm probably not going to read emails on the air, but um, I always welcome feedback. And I just want to thank everyone for uh, the support. The first episode of Cerebro already has over a thousand listens and we're only three weeks into the pod. So I am just really um, touched and overwhelmed by the positive response. This is a real passion project that I, I was convinced I could do. I didn't think I could do it. And, and so far it's working out. So thank you all for uh, being along for the ride. And um, until next time, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.